Maybe these will help. Sunglasses? Like the ones Jim West wears in that new Wild Wild West movie. Now at Burger King, you can get your own pair of Wild Wild West sunglasses from the new action-packed movie for just $1.99 with any tasty Western Whopper value meal. What's Jim West? I don't know. What's a movie? everybody show me the mooney episode 61 saturday july 17th we're recording a saturday night show how you feeling feeling good man getting ready to either watch the yankees continue to be the yankees which is normally a good thing this year it's not or watch the fifth game of the nba finals which is always a pivotal game because usually the winner game five like 70 like 5% of the time is who wins the series. So perhaps we'll see. I'm, I'm really like excited about this NBA finals. Like, did you see the Giannis block? Nope. I didn't see it. Such a athletic feat. Like he wasn't looking at the, the ball when it was being passed. He didn't know where it was going. He didn't know if the person was on a three point line. He didn't know if the person was like right behind him. He just turned around and went up. Blocked it. Might have been one of the greatest defensive plays in NBA Finals history. I mean, it sucks because this week uh, I fell out of the watching the games. So I, I was it was a weird week for me. I didn't feel well, so I missed out on uh, Game Four. So now I got to catch up on it tonight. Uh, it's two-two series tied, of course, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we can jump back in and talk about it. Um, yeah, but a lot of things we're going to talk about. Uh, speaking of the NBA. Uh, we're going to talk about Stephen A. Smith. Uh, guys, remember last week we had a little situation with ESPN uh, uh, personalities. Uh, now we have arguably Stephen A. Smith is, when I think of ESPN, I think of him. Uh, we're going to talk about two things that happened this week that he, that he said, and we're going to talk about, you know, how we feel about it. Right. Uh, we're also going to talk about, uh, me and Chuck like to talk about old movies, Uh we recently uh, came up that we should talk about Wild Wild West, mm-hmm. Will Smith vehicle uh, from 21 years ago. I can't believe that. Uh, but we're going to talk about that, our memories of it uh, in our little retrospective area segment. Yeah. If you've been watching those videos on YouTube, it's all in one tight um, playlist. Um, we have all the in retrospects that we've done as well as, you know, other little tidbits where we, you know, you know, talk about, you know, nostalgic things that have captured our attention. And we're also going to do our, uh, this is the third time we're talking about once Upon a time in Hollywood. Um, a lot of good stuff in these chapters. We've read a good amount of pages this week. Um, a lot of key moments pop up that we're going to jump into uh, this week. I'm looking forward to that. Oh, no, but the one thing I want to do talk about, and it includes me, um, you know, this week, a matter of fact, like not only a couple of days ago, 
we lost Bismarcky, mm-hmm. who yeah. people know from, you know, um, Just a Friend, you know, which was like his most popular song, but he was um, a beatboxer. And he was around during like the nascent of rap, like the first legs of what we know to be hip hop. And he was a beatboxer. So back in the day, like people used to in the cafeteria or just on a block would, you know, start rhyming and they would have people making beats and they would just, you know, rhyme to the beats. So he was one of the people that did both. And it's a personal story for me. Uh, it could be taken with a grain of salt because I've not seen um, pictures. Um, uh, my father's not really a reliable source. So this is just hearsay. But apparently my father in the 80s, he actually lived here in New York, um, lived in Hempstead, New York with my grandfather who died before I was born. So I never met him. And he owned a hair salon and a couple of different like clubs and bars in the South Bronx, uh, some near Yankee Stadium. And my dad, he spent a lot of time out, you know, in between Queens and Hempstead because my great grandma, she lived out in Queens, like kind of on the border. So he would, you know, venture back and forth. So apparently back in those days, the early 80s, you know, you go to these house parties and he became um, cool with the likes of Bismarcky, MC Light um, way back when. And he would tell me these stories when I was a kid. Like, yeah, I know Bismarcky. Da-da-da-da. And, you know, like I said, that's what he said. I don't know, he's not the most reliable um, source. Perhaps it's true, perhaps it's not. But fast forward to like two or three years ago, I used to go to a little spot out on the end of Fordham Road, almost to the the river called Salsa Con Fuego, mm-hmm. formerly X Bar. Uh, yeah. Formerly, if you really, really um, older, it used to be Jimmy's Cafe. Um, it's always been synonymous with like the hip hop community, but in the last couple of years, my boy Ant, he would always invite me out. I would rush from where me and Mike used to work, um, either come dressed to go, or I would run home, get dressed real quick, and then head up and meet him at Salsa Con Fuego, uh, as it's known now. And every Friday, they would have like the, the old school night. And they didn't just play old school music. They actually had live performances by um, several um, old school acts. Slick Rick, I went to um, Eric B and Rakim. And at one of those events, I actually bumped into, I would bump into a lot of people. They would just be in a crowd. It's, it's not like a concert venue. It's just like a bar, club type of thing. So you bump into like, you know, famous people. So I've like dapped up like, Funk Master Flex, um, I can't really remember because this pre like COVID days, I can't really. It's all like cloudy to me, but I did bump into Bismarcky, dapped him up. You know, I didn't really get the chance to be like, oh, like yo, you remember um, you know, uh, Vincent. Da, da, da. Uh, I didn't really get the chance to do that, but um possibly if my father's stories is true it's it would be crazy that 
Bismarcky, up and coming rapper, my 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 dad like rubbed shoulders with. Then fast forward to him being like a hip hop legend, like I get to shake his hand, and he wouldn't even know that like oh shit that's like Vincent's son. So I was very sad to see that he passed away, fifty seven years old, which is around my dad's age. So. R.I.P. Bismarcky. I know a lot of people got introduced to him from like Mario's version of Just a Friend, but it was just sad to see him pass. I know it had a scare a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and never. Yeah, yeah, a couple of weeks. It was kind of like the same. Yeah. It, it was kind of like the DMX thing. It was, mm. um, you know, kind of the the reports of his demise were greatly exaggerated, and then unfortunately, a couple of days after, it became true. So I want to send. My love out to him and his family. Other people I want to send love out to BK Madison's. Um, another one of his shirts. We posted a video where I detail, and they were very gracious. Um, and I've always been very, very um supportive of this stuff, and I always um try to you know shout out the stuff out that we're on the show that's not from like WWE or like MLB shop and. Um, this is one of their works, Dorothy Dandridge. Um, it just shows like their range, and they actually got some new shit. As a matter of fact, Mike, I was gonna send you some. They um actually got like a Prince shirt. I think you oh. would like that. They just released it, one of their new releases. So check that mm-hmm. out. Shout out BK Madison's. Uh, I'm gonna check that out. Uh, Bismarck Key. Uh, he's part of the Juice Crew. That was a big deal. Um, they they will always have like the reunion tours. Mm-hmm. And they would always play the clubs. Um, and again, like Bismarck K57, all the guys who you think, wow, man, they've been around since the early 80s. You got to remember, like, LL Cool J is only like 55. He was like 16 mm-hmm. when he came out. So all these guys who are legends, who are legends, they're in their like late 50s, yeah. which is crazy. But they're getting up there now. Um, I actually just passed uh, uh, the Bronx Cafe uh, last week. Uh, it was like my first time going back out. Shug, I told you I went to the ECW Arena in Philly. So we had to like, drive through the throughway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's an iconic spot. And I actually pointed it out to my girlfriend. I was like, that place used to be famous, man. They would have like, you know, uh, the, the Big Pun and Fat Joe would always perform there in the late 90s. Uh, so I passed by that a few times. Uh, I saw Colin Quinn, like I said, first stand up. Me and Sugar were going to go to another stand up one day. Because uh, yeah. tweets, the one thing I'll say about it is like twi- uh, clever tweets are great and all, you know, very funny. But mm-hmm. I miss the whole right in your face interaction between a crowd and a performer um because yeah. like again like the crowd could be uh we're you know affable and everything but if you say something crazy some people are going to get it. it's very sensitive material that the gentleman was using you know was talking about so um it's exciting the, the you know because one day you'll see it on like netflix special maybe yeah anyway. yeah you was asking me about the nba so we're gonna go straight into it um the nation is like scared because possibly it looked like the the national team, your USA men's basketball looks kind of shaky. They've lost two exhibition games, and I've seen some start where it was like they lost two exhibition games like this um period or whatever, or the last two weeks they had only lost like two exhibition games like period for like twenty nine years preceding this. Um, so it looks kind of bleak. One of the teams that they did beat was Nigeria, which actually was full of actual guys that mm. um, play in the NBA. 
but some who don't and actually like there's actually like an NBA endorsed um league in Africa um J Cole was actually playing in it a couple of weeks ago the the rapper um so these guys aren't like slouches but um they they haven't played too well and a person who's been in the news this week Stephen A Smith um <laughs> And, you know, you know how he is. He gets worked up and he goes off on these rants or whatever, whatever. And I guess he was, like, reading off, like, the boss school or reading off the team roster for Nigeria. And he was trying to figure out how a team with, like, Damian Lillard and Kevin Durant and et cetera, et cetera, could lose to a team with these guys. And he was, like, he was mispronouncing their names. He was mispronouncing their names. And he was, like, you know what, like, I, I instead of correcting himself, he was like, I, I ain't even gonna bother trying to, like, um, pronounce their names. So, that's not just the only international incident. Um, the MLB All-Star game came up. Always a fun affair. People were critical of the fact that this was the first time they wore uniforms. Um, all the same uniforms. They would always wear their team uniforms and I actually kind of hated it to begin with but then as the more and more I heard people like not liking it it like actually made me start to like it uh, you ever felt that mm. way Mike yeah, yeah yeah um contrarian like you're like all right anyway yeah, I get like, what you're saying it's, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world I'm like but I love the fact that the NBA would always have the same uniform and then they stopped doing that and I didn't like that remember like in the early 2000s they yeah. started wearing their own jersey I didn't like that so and in the I, NBA, I was really into the like the, the the Arizona one they had. That was really nice. Yeah, and they they brought it back. Um, but yeah, the 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 star of the show, um, Shohei Otani, who um is a Japanese player. He's one rookie of the year. I don't think he should have won rookie of the year. I thought he should have won to Gleyber Torres or um Miguel Andor, but it's neither here nor there. Um, he's an anomaly because he pitches as well as hits and um he's basically like the face of baseball he's like already like the slam dunk mvp candidate he leads the league in home runs and he has like an era that's under three um it's incredible but apparently he's not marketable because he doesn't speak english fluently according to stephen a smith yeah so that's the whole thing where it's like they're using the word marketable um, but I've heard that before. I've heard that with like Latino players too, where, um, a lot of, if you have to use an interpreter, it's like, how can we have you as like the face, uh, you know, like, cause who I was on it. This is why I wanted to ask you, who's the face of the MLB right now besides him? Like, who, who would you say if you're it's just devil's advocate, like where he's saying you have to be like, be able to talk to the media. Well, is it like Mike, Mike Trout, but that's the name I knew you were going to say, but like, I don't, I've believe, never I don't heard think him, he is. I've never heard him speak. Like I've, I've seen him do like subway commercials. Yeah. And he pop up at the, the end of the commercial and just like eat fresh. And that's the only thing I've heard him say. And they market the hell out of him, even though like his team never makes the playoffs. All in off is a teammate of Shohei Itani. So it's, it's ironic. And I think he's injured. So like Shohei is kind of like, you know, the, the flag bearer of the Los Angeles Angels, like, currently. Yeah, but let's talk about it. Um, he's he's Japanese. Like, we've had great Japanese uh, ball players. We had Hideki Matsui. 
He was like the top jersey, uh, one of the top jerseys sold in 2003. Because right, first off, it's not even just being like a Japanese player in MLB. He was playing yeah. with the Yankees. He played and right away. He came through with that game. Remember that game with the Twins? Yeah, yeah, Grand yeah. Slam. Like, mm-hmm. but but the thing about it too is like he. It's ironic because Shohei Otani, like my argument back in 2018 when he won Rookie of the Year, was because like um. And also for Masahiro Tanaka, like people would use the argument. It was like, well, they're not really rookies because they played in Japan. And all three times that a Yankee has been like snubbed for rookie of the year, it's like, you know, the the, the Japanese players, um, Matsui, because he played in Japan. He played for the Yamari Giants for like 10 years or something like that. Um, can I ask you, did they change the rule yet in Japan? Because the, the, the rule was that you had to play in Japan for 10 years. That's why Ichiro had to come after 10 years. That's why, like you said, Hideki was there for 10 years. Is that still the rule? There? Yeah, I, I, they changed it, but it's changed so much in the last decade. It's changed, like, the whole system has changed, like, three or four times. Like, back when Matsui, because they, they would get major league contracts, like, Tanaka, he had like a six-year, $150 million contract. But now, essentially, like, Otani, he only gets paid, like, like the MLB minimum right now. Mm, yeah. Because all the money is paid, like, he gets paid the minimum and, like, his old team gets paid, like, you know, $30 million or something like that. So, they, they, they kind of used to um, be exempt from the whole like service time free agency mm-hmm. stuff but now they're kind of like part of it. it's like not nah, like everybody you start off at square one so like what like a rookie major leaguer makes is what they're gonna make but my point is that you know they would use that and but every other like japanese player that you know one rookie at a year they they that whole argument gets to the wayside because like Ichiro, as you mentioned, won AL MVP and AL rookie of the year um the same year, uh his first season. But then two years later when Matsui came, they gave it to Angel Baroa, um, who had like a, a subpar season compared to Hideki Matsui, but they said they couldn't give it to Matsui because he played so long in Japan. And then fast forward to Masahiro Tanaka. I can't remember who won the rookie of the year his year, but he had a really strong rookie year. I think he ended up like third or fourth, but he had a really good rookie year. And that kind of same argument was used against him. And then a couple years later, when it was Otani, uh, Miguel Andujar, who's who both well, Andujar and Gleyber Torres, they both played for the Yankees, but they both had really good rookie seasons. I think. For that year, Miguel Andujar had the superior season of the three because Shoy Otani got injured like midway through the season and they still gave him rookie of the year. And I'm like, whoa, like Miguel Andujar was a legitimate like first time major league rookie, whereas Otani got rookie of the year in Japan. But this isn't just me like bitching about the Yankees Mm, not winning awards. My point is, like, Otani is, like, this huge superstar. He's – people call him the modern-day Babe Ruth, but as I've tweeted, Babe Ruth never hit and pitched in the same season. Like, he started off as a really good pitcher. Like, 
not the greatest pitcher, but he was like top like five in a league pitcher. Noteworthy. Exactly. And then after a while, they would let him play in the outfield because the DH didn't come until like 50 years after yeah, this. 70s, I believe. Mm-hmm. So they would have him play the outfield like two or three times out of the week. And then two out of three times became three or four times when he wasn't pitching. And then it became, all right, like he hits far better than he pitches. So let's just have him in the outfield. Because even if you look up his stats, he only made like a few appearances his last two seasons with the Red Sox. And in a, with the Yankees, he only like pitched like twice. And they weren't like the greatest like starts ever. They were kind of like spot starts. Um, so it's a big difference between um I call him like the modern modern day Babe Ruth is um not exactly Yeah, it's a bit of an exaggeration. It's exaggeration, yeah. But again, yeah. he's in uh like Nomo was a Dodger. Again, again, a lot of the Japanese players are on the coast, like Seattle. Uh, LA, a lot of uh, Asian Americans and especially uh, like Japanese Americans live on the West Coast. So Nomo is a Dodger, LA, that's, you know, Hollywood, that's like, you know, media capital. And uh, Tani's on the Angels, yeah. Anaheim Angels, they're, you know, they're LA. So what they're marketing him, um, you know, let's go back to the reason why we're talking about Stephen A. Smith. Um, where is that rooted in? Uh, why can't like if it was a, a the best player was Hispanic and he spoke to a like we have a Yankee who speaks with an interpreter yeah uh, I, I, like I, like as you've said Masahiro Tanaka Hideki Matsui two of my favorite Matsui's Yankees one of my top five, uh, ever and Matsui is probably even further because he's the last World Series MVP we've had and like the way things are going probably look like he's gonna be the last World Series MVP I'm gonna have like while I still like have a hair full of black hair. Um, speaking, speaking of that, Matsui, anyway. every time every time Matsui would run down that fly ball and the hat would fly off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. Um, but yeah, but let's let's get into it. Uh, why MLB is what? It's waning in popularity. It's still considered what you know America's pastime. So this is where the whole crux of it is. It's like why can he be the face? Because it's like Americans who are like who can be American or not? Like identity is coming up in this conversation. Yeah. And especially Asian Americans, there's this thing about um, a lot of things I'm reading about with this has to do with uh, Asian men, especially being like masculine, like how, like so people are bringing that up, like where you can't be like a heroic, heroic character or in, if it's like a movie, like mm-hmm. we'll get into later on. We're going to talk about once a time in Hollywood with Bruce Lee. So why like is it ingrained in us that these uh, these faces can't? represent all of us because they are the other it's an issue with uh, um, America um, and the word that was being said about it and it's a word that has basically been the theme of America ever since like Donald Trump became um, a presidential candidate and unfortunately become president like xenophobia this like you're you're not american enough or the things you do aren't american and Stephen a smith he had multiple times where he had to address it um the first one was kind of like uh 
the way I described it on Twitter, I was like, okay, what I was saying in his in his mind or what what he said, or my my paraphrasing is of what he said is what I said was taken out of context, but I meant what I said. So I'm saying it, saying exactly what I said, but again, in a different way where he, he was like, you know, well, what I meant to say was, I, he was like, I don't have any problem with Shoei Tani. I think he's an awesome player, but the MLB fan base is a much older generation. Um, and they might not take to somebody who doesn't speak the language, which was like, okay, let me just, you know, double down. Throw some, yeah, double down basically. And that's the point of baseball. It's like, bro, like you, we, we don't need to be marketing towards old people. Like it's the younger generation, especially in this era where when you look at a baseball game, guys, you know, you look at the kids, like the teens, like the kids, the little kids, they'll probably be watching the game. But the thing is, what are they doing? Mm. Staring at their phone the whole time. So the game needs to be have to has to be exciting and it has to be has to have like a lot more exciting players in it. Unfortunately, like a couple of weeks ago, one of the most exciting players in the game, Ronald Cunha, um, who's somebody like I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, like one of the broadcasters for one of like the visiting teams criticized him for like, oh, like he's wearing these big old chains. He can't run across the bases Mm. or some shit like that. And, you know, it's like, all right, so you're telling me the exciting highlight reel player that's like 22 years old we're not supposed to try to market to him. We're supposed to market to the asshole, the racist, bigoted asshole in the booth. That's who the future of the game is. That's whose hands these are in. Nah, it's in the kids. Like, and kids don't give a fuck if Shoei Otani can speak English or not. Like, I remember when I was a kid and everybody used to talk about, like, David Ortiz and Manny Ramirez and Pedro Martinez and, you know, with the Yankees when, like, Cano came up or uh, Chingming Wong or... um you know, these guys that didn't speak English, like, it really, it made no sense to me. I was like, why, if these guys, like, your box score can speak for you. Now, if something outside of the realm of the game, like, say, in Pedro Martinez's case, like, the Don Zimmer incident, if that's something that needs to be explained, and that person um, can't articulate it, fluently in our language but can have questions directed to him toward you know to an interpreter and the interpreter tells him the question and then he responds in spanish to the interpreter but the interpreter gives his response to the media that's totally fine like you're answering a question and i think the, the issue that a lot of players have before all of this was the fact that like without the translators everything would get lost in translation and you would end up getting misquoted because you'd answer a question in an awkward or insensitive way without knowing it, which is one of the reasons, like the person I pushed for all non, um, non, non-fluent or influent MLB players, Carlos, Carlos Beltran, who was somebody who was kind of like, 
you know, out of the game right now because of the whole Astros things. But he was one of the people I pushed for it because he said he was like a high draft pick with the Kansas City Royals. And he was in the minor leagues up until when he was in the major leagues and he would go, he was in Kansas City and he would go out to like fast food spots mm. and he wouldn't be able to order for himself. So he'd simply repeat the order of the person in front of him because he couldn't speak English. And he was like, he, he in himself, like ingrained in his mind is like the more and more I become influential in this game, I'm going to push for this to change. And he did that. Uh, yeah. Um, two things I'm going to say, this just popped in my head about Japan. All right. So like you would have like a American go over there. Mm -hmm. uh, they would do like, you know, Japanese commercials. They would, they would speak the language, but this is America. Japan is very xenophobic of themselves, but America is different because we're not just Japanese. We're everything. So that's why it's different. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? I was just gonna, about to bring it up. Oh yeah. So uh, this came up recently about bad bunny music. Yeah. What would they always call Latino music? Or if it gets really popular, they would say crossover hit. Mm -hmm. Recently, he said, he's like, that term doesn't mean anything anymore because I don't have to cross over. I am the biggest pop song yeah, yeah. right now. So he's, he brought that up recently. He was like, you can listen to a song now, not even speak the language, but it's still going to be a hit. Yo, listen, I came you, up. you've seen me wear my Eddie Guerrero Latino heat shirt, right? That's mm -hmm. from Bob Money. Bob Bunny, who of course yep. is a, actually been a champion, held a championship in WWE, but he was really influ. He was he grew up on WWE, and he probably grew up not even speaking English, but he for some reason like he gravitated towards world wrestling entertainment, and he embraced it, and it became part of his culture, and it brought him closer to American culture. So who's to say like Shoyatani isn't doing the same thing? Yeah, and Atani, again, Japanese is, they've been, baseball's a huge deal in Japan, and now it's in all over Asia, but Japan yeah. specifically. Um, Bro, baseball say... is not a global sport, but it's it's where it is popular, like in uh, Latin America and in Asia, mm -hmm. it's inc insanely popular. Um, but it's not a global sport. Uh, the whole clicks, like on, on Twitter, like the basketball clips, you get the seven-second clip, and you know what's going on in the league. In baseball, you, there's so much more context. Like you, it's again, they've been trying to slow down. They've been trying to uh, speed up the game because it's not exciting. So this this goes with the whole thing with making baseball uh, more popular. And yeah, again, and it's counter counterproductive right now. He's proving the point where, like you said, you're trying to appease an older generation who's not going to be watching the game anymore in a few years because they're going to be gone. You know. And how do players today the younger players interact with fans social media exactly and now what a lot of players could do is you could tweet in spanish and guess what it comes up on your your feed there's a button where like gary sanchez i follow on him yo soy gary you could click on his tweet and translate it and it'll be in English. Or now with the interpreters, you can ha they have their interpreters tweeting for them. Or have their they could have their teammates tweet for them. So it's not really important whether or not you speak the language. Like I don't like to me and to our generation, like actions speak louder than words. Like nobody 
really sit down like i don't think no anybody really like sits down and breaks down what people say about the game after the game like if your box score says you were three for four with two home runs and like five rbis you know that speaks for itself if otani pitched you know seven innings and gave up one run and had nine strikeouts on monday and then for the rest of the week he had four home runs that speaks for itself. I don't need to hear what he has to say about it. What is what would that? What would any quote that he has to say add to what he did on the field? It would be just personality, like oh, I like this guy; he's cool. But but the, the numbers speak for itself, though. Exactly. Just, hey, who just, speaks perfect English? Aaron Boone, and half the shit he says is bullshit anyway. <laughs> so who cares if you, if you could speak the language? Mike, you ain't saying shit. A, touching a sore spot on me right now <laughs> anyway. no, but, but hey in star trek they had no one's everyone spoke the same language because they had a device that would translate everything that's mm-hmm. the future man and, the, and and it was a 1960s show and it was forward thinking very progressive was, they, you know it was funny as well about because it. my um like we we have like a lady that comes to our house and like cleans so like my mom's like talking to me and she's like um or she she was asking me something and my mom always is like in in um days because she they can't like communicate. She don't know what to say. But I would see the lady like she put in and Google Translate what she wants to say and try to say or like she'll show my mom. And then she was asking me something, and I saw what she was asking, but I didn't know how to respond. So I was like, I just was like, I ran to my room, got my phone, Google Translate, blah 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 blah. What, what I wanted to answer to her, and I just showed it to her, and I was like, oh, yeah, like, and she was like, okay, I got it, and then I, I told my mom, I was like, you know, you could just open up Google, <laughs> say what you want to say, and it will repeat it in Spanish, and she could, you know, likewise, say something in Spanish and repeat it in English, like, you don't even need the translator, so to speak, but um, it's interesting, like I said, their the play could do the talking for them, especially in this era where, like, Colin, because I'm going to bring him up in a second before we end this, Colin Kaepernick and LeBron James and all these other players, what do they say? Shut up and play. So why do you care whether or not they speak English or not if they're playing? Mm. Yeah. But it, it really isn't like the first time like Stephen A. Smith has had to like, you know, um put his foot in, foot in his mouth, so to speak. After the Ray Rice incident, um on like not that I agreed with him, but I understood where he was coming from. But he did get suspended because he was what he said was, you know, like sometimes there are situations in these, you know, instances where a man, you know, in that Ray Rice situation hits a woman. And it's like, you know, sometimes the woman would provoke the man into doing that. But, you know, it was more complex than that. But it was said, but a lot of people like, you know, were offended by that. So he had to put his foot in his mouth for that. Um, the Lamar Odom you know, he was on crack, you know, which became like a big like meme, you know, it's funny, you know, we are initially like, we all think it's funny, but it's like, you know, there's a lot of people that go through addiction and the trials and tribulations, especially somebody like Lamar Odom, where he was on the brink of death. You know, it's not something you could laugh about. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure if that was before after he said that, but Lamar Odom was like very offended by it. And then Colin Kaepernick, um, 
he questioned whether or not Colin Kaepernick wanted to play football or not. When in reality, Colin Kaepernick, in relation to when the NFL agreed to have like a uh, open um, challenge or open practice with him to see if he could still play, where he agreed to it, but he wanted cameras and he wanted it to be um, open to the public. So that way, um, it's not just that. NFL's narrative because it would have been easier in a closed practice for people to say well he can't throw anymore whereas if it was like televised or other people were invited other eyes could be like well, well he, he he was throwing the ball pretty well like people who weren't um you know wouldn't be aligned with the NFL especially the fact that like the NFL team sent like not even like their best scouts. They were sending like the the intern or something to like watch him play, and um in relation to that, like Terrell Owens, um <laughs> said to him, and Stephen A. Smith got like extremely offended because Terrell Owens was like, "Listen, I think Max Kellerman might be even blacker than you," and he he got pissed. So it's not like it's not it's not unlike him to. Um, not be upset, and I like I was I was always been a fan of Stephen A. Smith. Like he was one of my favorite people when I first got into sports. You know, back when him and Skip Bayless used to do the um old school, new school segments on ESPN, which you know led to you know years later them um doing first take. So yeah, I, I'm I'm very familiar with Stephen A. Smith, but I I didn't I really didn't care for what he said. And another thing that pissed me off was a lot of people, um, tried to like. Well, he himself in a lot of his statements was like, "Well, I'm black, so I don't I I know about being offended." Um, but he he also in the way he said it was in ways that like you know what like listen I'm black, so I know what it is to be offended. So I should be a lot more sensitive to people being offended. But a lot of people were taking it into like, oh, like, you know, Stephen A. Smith says Black Lives Matter and all that. You, you know, he's always, you know, uh, campaigning for Black rights and, and stuff like that. And he, he says stuff like this. And I'm just like, bro, first of all, there's no need. There, It's really simple to highlight and scold Stephen A. Smith for saying offensive things about um, Nigerian basketball players and Asian um, Japanese American or Japanese baseball players without trying to like um, minimize the plight of African-Americans in this country. It's, it's simple. And it was weird as fuck because I was seeing it a lot from like white people Cause you know, like it's a lot. Like it's one thing if it came from like the Asian community to say, like, listen, bro, like, you know, we fought, we go through this criticism, but to hear like white people being like, oh, look, it's Mister um black, you know, pro black saying anti Asian stuff, so he's wrong, and pro black stuff doesn't matter because he says anti Asian stuff. It was it was just weird to me, Mike. Yeah, uh, not weird to me. I totally. Last week we talked about it. Uh, Rachel Nichols goes, "Hey, I'm hey, I'm a woman. I know yeah. what it's like to be it's the same thing." And I'm not saying this in like a in, in an insensitive way, but I'm telling you that 
not even just like white people saying it, but just other people saying something or checking someone who, hey, wait, what about me though? I have, I, I'm, I have a similar experience, but you still gotta check yourself. Like that's happening more and more. You like the, the more traditional, it'd be like generational. Like yeah. white people are like realizing like this is like something like in the sixties and then like the next generation, the next generation. This is happening in six months a year. Like all these different like I, uh, people that identify in like different, you know, race and gender and all that stuff. That's coming up more and more where they're it's they're bumping into each other more. And you would think that we should all be all together, but it's happening now where it's like again, it's like a white person talking about an Asian person, ridicule or. Uh, talking to Stephen A. Smith who has his own experience and you're like hey but what what about me and like well I have to apologize now like I'm sorry uh I have my own experience but yours is different than mine um I apologize you know it's like that's happening more and more yeah and it's gonna keep happening I mean I'm just watching it from like from every other like you you're like you as a as a man you're, you're you have your own experience you know I have my own experience um we're just learning more and more that uh there's so many different people out there you know right okay here we are i have a special guest we have a desperada a rough rider no you don't want nada we had james west with us yeah <laughs> shrug looking good you you got the uh the whole motif going with uh, victorian wild west sci-fi you got the uh uh lovecraft thing going on and you're pulling it off I'm kind of jealous because I couldn't walk around like that. But you can actually walk out right now, go down to the store. Going straight to the wild, wild west. Yeah, man. I couldn't. Right. Uh, listen, I was seeing a lot of wild west, wild, wild west slander, and I, I, I had, to, I was like, me and Mike, it's our duty. I shook me the moon to put this thing in retrospect. All right. So listen. So last fall we talked about '60s. TV series that got rebooted or, you know, like turned into movies um, in the 90s. G- generally speaking, that's what we talked about. If you look, go back on YouTube, click that on our on our uh, YouTube channel. Um, so just in general, generally speaking, Wild Wild West was a 60s series that got turned into a Will Smith uh, project in the, in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just a little overview of it uh funny enough we when we talked about different shows that were in the 60s and then like a movie version or like a new series in the 90s there was also a little blip in the early 80s where they tried bringing it back real quick and it failed like even wild wild west came back in 1980 yeah. real quick and then like it didn't work out but that's funny that happened with the odd couple uh because we talked about how the odd couple had their movie in the 90s that you know was from the 60s uh but wild wild west my initial memory of it it was summertime so i was in a good mood uh mm-hmm. came out in the summer of 99 but before the movie came out because uh i have a fonder memory of the music so earlier in the year will smith dropped his single and uh the wild wild west song i had the single uh, trl would always play it i was dancing like drew hill i was dancing like cisco and we had um the same formula because we'll get into another reason why it's very, very similar to Men in Black. But Will Smith had two years earlier, Men in Black, he had the hit, he had the movie. And then two years later, he had the hit song and the movie came out. Okay. Yeah. You have fond memories of the movie. Yeah. Um, 
Well, first of all, Barry Sonnenfeld, who we all know I'm a big fan of because he also directed one of my favorite movies, The Addams Family Values, which was the second movie in The Addams Family. But he also directed Men in Black. Um, Men in, all three Men in Blacks. Well, the three that matters, not that <laughs> the one that came out with um, Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson that was just like horrible from what I've heard. I've never seen it too. Yeah, I, I have no designs to see it. Um, interesting story. I remember one time I went to um this girl, like we um it was like my roommate's birthday and we went out to a club and he invited his friends. I was like his only like college friend that came to it and we went to this girl's house to like stay, you know, like crash at her place and then, you know, go back to the town where our school was at. Um, and we were bored as shit. And it was around the time like Men in Black 3 was on demand. So I was like, oh, on the Men in Black 3, 1090, like whatever, like a uh, pay-per-view movie costs or on-demand movie costs. I like... My drunken like self like ordered the movie and then fell asleep and then woke up the next day without seeing it. So the movie showed up on this girl's like cable bill. Like what the f-? she's probably looking at her like man. I'm like I never ordered this. You had a balance after you left the the, yeah. the hangout. <laughs> but yeah, he he directed all three movies. But interesting story. Um, person we celebrated last week. He was actually originally attached when they started. Um planning to bring men in black um planning to bring wild wild west um into a theatrical version of it richard donner and shane block who were the writer director team in um of the lethal weapon series they actually were attached to do it and mel gibson was attached to originally play james west or jim west but they left the project and did Maverick instead. Um, I'm not sure if Shane Black was involved in that, but Mel Gibson and Richard Donner, they carried over and it was kind of like table for years. And the first people they got were Sonnenfield and Will Smith. Will Smith actually turned down Neo in The Matrix, which he has stated is the worst regret of his career which hopefully turning down Django for after earth should be his biggest regret but Wild Wild West was his you know choosing Wild Wild West over the Matrix was his big regret and uh, it actually was the most expensive movie mm. to be made at the time of its release in 1999 at 170 million dollars which is not like super duper expensive by today's standards but adjusted to inflation is like a shit ton of money in today's numbers and the bo- the uh, box office they made uh 20 220 million so like it was a disappointment it was not a failure they barely the word, broke even yeah the word you would use is disappointment and, and what i read in the trivia was that like a lot of kids were unaccompanied minors would go to mm. the movies, buy tickets to Wild Wild West because it was like PG or PG-13, and then they would go and see American Pie 
or um, <laughs> the sophomore bigger, longer, and uncut. And uh, I think Scary Movie, no, no, Scary Movie was not 99. I forget. But I, I remember Tomb Raider got a lot of my money to see Scary Movie too. So mm-hmm. you, you adjust that inflation? No, you adjust that for that sneaking into a movie. Uh, good point. Uh, what I remember most from back then, besides the music, was the Burger King toys. That was a big yeah. Deal. Yeah, I, I was glad you wrote that up because I remember, I, like, my, I don't know if I've said it to you, Mike, but I don't think at no, any point in my lifetime was there ever, ever ever anything that Burger King put out that I was like, oh, I got to have that. And the only times I would, like, be like, oh, we got to go to Burger King. We got to go to Burger King to, like, you know, um, my, my my parents or whatever it was um whenever they had like movie tie-ins because they actually had like um they had the sunglasses that you would get if you bought um the western whopper yeah yeah which was basic uh, like basically anytime any fast food place says western it's just a regular old, like bacon cheeseburger with like barbecue sauce on it <laughs> yeah yeah western uh, yeah and I had to get these glasses, so um, and they came in like regular sunglasses things with, and they they were like little like five dollar shades. Yeah, but like, it, let's talk about that. It had a cool look because um, it's like Victorian. Because movie probably takes place in what like eighteen ninety probably or something. Like that. So it's like eighteen sixty nine. Eighteen sixty nine. Okay, so it's early Victorian. So you have the two characters. You got the one. You know, it's, think about the '60s. Let's go back to the '60s because you had what was popular: James Bond and westerns. Yeah, uh, we have been full in depth with westerns because of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, because I was gonna say that I was like the thing about back then, like especially reading Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is like they had so many different western series. It was like a reality show, but how we yeah. have all these different reality shows with westerns. Yeah. Great. So you, yeah, ex- great, great, yeah, great, great. Think about it. Analogy. So what you had to do, you kind of had to, um, you had to like stand out. So Wild Wild West essentially was kind of like a Western mixed with like James Bond. Cause they would have all these over the top, like villains, um, over the years. And something I found out today while I was like watching, rewatching a movie and doing like my little Wikipedia thing was that Loveless, he wasn't like a half man um, or guy who was like cut in half. Ironically, he was a dwarf in the original series um, and actually appeared in 10 episodes. First two episodes, he had a bodyguard who was played by Richard Keel, who, if you don't know him, Jaws from the James mm-hmm. Bond series. As well as if you've seen Happy Gilmore, he was like the, the neighbor aunt. who gets hit in the head. Yeah, with the nail, and then it came eventually became like a big like Happy Gilmore fan, and like he attacks um he he attacks on um, Shooter McGavin. Uh, but it was his. But the the character played in a movie by Kenneth Kenneth Branagh, who's an interesting person of himself because he's like a huge um like theatrical like mm. a serious actor but he pops up in these movies like randomly where he kind of like you know stretches his acting chops and 
you know, he he directed Thor. He's been directing um Agatha Christie's um mm. Hercule Poirot. He's been playing his character um Death on the Nile. Pops up a lot. Yeah, Death yeah, on the Nile is coming up, and um the Orient Ex- Murder on the Orient Express that came out in like 2016. Yeah. Um, but he, he pops up in different things, but he played um loveless in this movie but the character was a mix of the dwarf character played by william dunn i think or michael dunn not sure what's his name and also a character played by ricardo maltabon yeah he was one of the guys yeah yeah so they were mixed together maltabon was like a um who everybody knows as khan or as I know him from Naked Gun, um, as a villain, Naked Gun, and Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island. He's the guy yeah. with the plane. You know, he's like yeah. the, the gentleman, the good-looking guy with with uh, the guy. Yeah. So they oh, they took like the um character, but then added like the motivations of Ricardo Maltabon's character, which was like a um. A ex-confederate general and he wanted to reverse time to kill Ulysses S. Grant so that the confederacy would win whereas in this movie Loveless um, he's kind of like and this is why I was telling Mike because Mike was just saying let's do all for like memory and I'm like no I gotta rewatch it because it's probably things in a movie I didn't pick up on as a kid where essentially there's the character um, Bloodbath McGrath General Blood Black McGrath, who was played by um uh Mike what was his name? Robert Irvine. I look it up again. And he was um he he's known for playing Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. And he was the one character I was kind of drawn to as a kid, like because he was like he had a um like a phonograph like mm. hair hairpiece. Ted. Ted yeah, Ted Irvine. Yeah, yeah Ted Irvine. Yeah. Levine. Yeah. He had like an earpiece, like that was like a phonograph, like a little phonograph. And I had like one part where he like empties it and it was like just like yellow slime slipping out of it. But he was like a Confederate general that was in cahoots with Loveless. And midway through the movie, like he turns on Loveless and. Um, I mean, Loveless turns on him and actually kills his whole like unit, and then you realize like Loveless is a man in he's he he's a man with no country. He is only loyal to himself, and his plan was to hold America hostage by forcing the president at the time, Ulysses S. Grant who was played in a dual role by Kevin Klein. he would sign over America and then he would essentially chop up America. And basically this is a part where it's like, you know, these guys, the, the evil or the villain guy, the villains would have these evil plans, but like in retrospect, it's like, it wasn't really like that, like evil of a plan. He was going to give, yeah, it wasn't that diabolical. Like he was gonna give back all of the land that the Amer- that America took, and then basically took like unclaimed land in the um take unclaimed land 
in the western, the northwestern to the Midwest of the north west and claim that line for himself, like Montana and like Wyoming and so to speak. So Texas and California would go back to Mexico. Florida would go back to Spain. Um, England would get um, uh, the original colonies, except for Manhattan. Manhattan would be returned to the <laughs> yeah. Native Americans. Lenape. Yeah. So it was just... Um, it's it funny, was- though, but that is a diabolical thing if you are a proud american though yeah <laughs> you know from that Z- point of <laughs> xenophobia talk about xenophobia uh that's, well, that's ironic i'm actually wearing the saint augustine that's the first uh place in america that uh, the spanish colonized so that that popped in my head when you were talking about it yeah but it's ironic too because they they try to make him they they add evil deeds that he did in order to make him a viable like villain such as well, one of the main things is Jim Wesson original series was played by Robert Conrad, who we'll talk a little bit about in Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So he was white, but they cast Will Smith, who was black. So they 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 added, you know, themes of, you know, being an African-American at that time such as being a former slave and stuff like that. So they gave him a backstory where as soon as he was old enough to run, he escaped slavery, went out West and got um, adopted and raised by Native Americans in the desert. But he eventually becomes a U.S. Marshal. And within the time that he's a U.S. Marshal, the only other time he sees his parents since he escaped, you know, off the plantation was in a town for freed slaves in Illinois where Loveless used one of his many inventions, actually the same invention that he used to kill um, McGrath's um, unit. He used it in this town where all these free slaves were and slaughtered them basically by shooting them all and they use that as motivation for him to to hate Loveless because his parents were one of the people at that time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, Kevin Klein, you mentioned that he did dual role, but he's also like the inventor. He's like the mix of like M or whatever. He has like all the gadgets and stuff. And mm-hmm. so that's his character. You said that uh, Loveless, uh, you know, his, um, he was actually a great actor, like theatrical too. Kevin Klein, in, in the '90s, you got to remember he was a big deal in the '90s. Kevin yeah, Klein. yeah. I was thinking like he kind of like disappeared off the scene. The one thing about him, like that's always been like the interesting Phoebe. fact is like, yeah, he's married to Phoebe Cates, who's and she, like she, she completely just after Gremlins too. Like you don't see her anymore. Yeah, she kind of disappeared as well. And is that then, the girl? That girl who sang that song, um, uh, the one who married Paul Simon, she disappeared too. Yeah. Uh, uh, slow down. Yeah one of those things where she married a guy and then just disappeared yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, every time like fast time comes on i'm like oh i'll watch it till like this part after you know and we we, we know the part <laughs> i gotta go i gotta go stacy shout I out go. <laughs> shout, shout out mike damone <laughs> uh but yeah i mean um yeah with the storyline i mean that, it's a great storyline. I, I, I'm not sure what else came out in 99. What else came out in 99? Like, why wasn't it the hit that they thought it would be? 
I think people were like over westerns. Um, I think that's really it. Cause like I think they like people in general, unless like it was like exceptional. Because remember, as we said, Maverick came out and it didn't do well. And mind you, it was like basically the team from, and it was like Mel Gibson's like hottest time. That's when he was like a huge movie star. Like, yeah, in the 80s, he did, like, Road Warrior, but it wasn't until he came over and did Lethal Weapon. No, Braveheart, 95. Yeah. That was his big big moment. So the early 90s was, like, his time, and it still didn't didn't take off the way that that people thought. And I think not as well as, you know, um, the big old mechanical spider and all the inventions and stuff like that, but it was, like, a... I can't say it's a true to heart um, adaptation of the series because Robert Conrad was vehemently against this um, movie after he read the script because he actually was topped to do a cameo role as Ulysses S. Grant and he turned it down um, after reading the script. He just said this wasn't faithful to the series, but that's like Mission Impossible. Happened yeah. in Mission Impossible. What's his name? Uh, was offered a role to play the John Boy character, mm-hmm. and he said no. He was like, you know, he wanted to be like the man. He wanted to be Tom yeah Bruce. because he was he, because he, he because his character like spoiler alert anybody I haven't even yeah. seen Mission Impossible, but I've read the plot synopsis that his character was turned evil, and he was mm-hmm. like, nah, like the whole original series was me being like the hero. Yeah, no, we should watch that because it's a Brian De Palma movie, which I completely yeah. forget. Tom Cruise and Brian De Palma working together in Mission Impossible. Um, that was 95, 96. That was a big deal. But the next year, we had we had Men in Black, which was huge. Again, the formula. You had Will Smith, who was coming off of, uh, you know, he had the TV show. And then he had um, Independence Day. And then he had Men in Black, which was, Men in Black was like the, the script. It was based off of a, a very obscure comic. Mm-hmm. And they were going to give it to Tarantino. Tarantino yeah. turned it down. And then Seinfeld got, you know, he got it. So you had the song, which was like a, a 70s sample where they just kind of changed uh, the lyrics a little bit. And yeah, he had Stevie one of the biggest, Wonder. yeah, and you had one of the, well, I'm talking about like the Men in Black had it. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'm coming, yeah. So you had that oh, song. Oh, no, Champlain King. Yeah. Yeah. So you had that. And then you had, so that was like the formula that they did with Wild Wild West. Same exact formula, but uh, maybe it was a little too much because a lot of the, a lot of the media, a lot of the money that was spent in the budget was, the uh, overexposure of the campaign, the advertising, because it was everywhere. Yeah. I remember it. I was like 10. So like and from what I read about it, like as they finished shooting, like everybody who did the movie was like, I don't like this. I hate this. Like we, we forgot but they already up. had like, you know, um, all the marketing tie-ins. They also had toys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you, you hung out in the action figure section of like Kmart or you went to Toys R Us, like you'd see like wow wow West stuff. So we so in the eighty nine in June they had you know Ghostbusters two Batman Batman was a huge deal but you had uh, uh, Last Crusade you had all these movies so like a lot of things came out at once and uh, some things it was all over the place. So a year later you had Dick Tracy. Mm-hmm. So and Dick Tracy was a flop because I think people were uh, fatigued from all these blockbusters. And then you had men, men, um, Independence Day, you had Men in Black, and then you had 99. People were fatigued, you know, because uh, the biggest hits of those times were like 
shitty uh, horror movies. You know, they were, you know, that was like kind of like Blair Witch Project was the biggest movie of that year. You know, that's the movie yeah. that was the big year, the big hit of that summer. And that was the cheapest movie ever made, you know? So the, so like the, you know what I mean? Think about it. But I Blair think Witch- also the thing about it is what do we talk about during our same time? WWE attitude era, right? What was the thing that influenced that all that trashy? Oh yeah, like Jewish and man. stuff like that. So people weren't, you know, you had to be over the top with it, and they tried, you know, mm-hmm. Loveless for one. Well, we didn't bring up Sama Hayek. Well, I, I was getting to that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I, you have to bring her up, man. You have to. <laughs> I was gonna say, well, first of all, like all of his like chicks, or, or all of his like his his team was like all women, which was also like a James Bond thing as well, where like all the young bodyguards or goons were like women, like hot women. Um, actually, one chick I didn't realize was like the chick that played Sindel in the Mortal Kombat, the second Mortal Kombat movie. Like oh, yeah. she was the main chick the whole time. I've, I've in retrospect, I always thought that was um Melinda Clark. Um, who some would know from, I think, Xena or Hercules, the TV shows, but I know from the OC, the the um teen show from the early 2000s, but it's not, it's actually um this lady, and you, yeah, like he, they have women, and then of course, Sama Hayek, which is like an interesting conversation because that's the thing that they always do. Um, what I've noticed in um, the 80s and 90s when it's post black exploitation, but also post like black rights era where oh. like black people didn't play like main roles. Um, but at the same time, in the 70s, like in the 70s, every fucking movie had like the black guy like betting some white chick. It was just part of it. It was part of like the fu to the to the man. Mm-hmm. But then in the 80s, like when they started having more black mainstream guys like Eddie Murphy, like we've talked about it where like trading trading places, like he didn't have a love interest in our movie. Dan Aykroyd did with Jamie Lee Curtis in Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2. He didn't really have a love interest. Like the first one, when it was written for Sylvester Stallone, um, the his friend, the girl, his female friend was supposed to be his love interest, but then they rewrote it so that she wasn't. She was just his friend. And I always say, I think like that one scene where they're in a hotel room and she's in the bed, you know, she's laying down on his bed and talking to him. And it's kind of like, you know, I'm mm-hmm. doing police work. And she's like, ah, so da 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 da. Like, I think that was kind of like a wink and a nod to like, yeah, something was supposed to go down, but he's... Yeah, yeah Axel Foley's like flirting with her, but it's like friendly. It's kind of, it's more of like a, a friend, like a home, like a homegirl thing. And uh, she, com- he completely cuts her off and he just goes, I think someone killed Mikey. And then he goes, he goes right into the whole like storyline. He completely just like, all, any, any type of sexual attention is just completely just thrown out the window. You know, you, yeah. you totally feel that in that movie. Yeah, so literally, like, virtually from the 80s up until, I would even say, like, up until, like, midway through, like, the 2010s, they would never really have, like, a movie 
where it was starred starring a black man, like a famous black man, and have him have a relationship with a famous white woman. Like even Will Smith, oddly enough, when he was unhitched, um, I believe like um Eva Mendez's character was supposed to play by like Cameron Diaz or um some other like blonde white woman. I can't remember who but they changed it to Eva Mendes. And then when you fast forward to like Hitchcock, um, he was in there with like Charlize Theron, but they were supposedly, supposedly lovers, but they didn't have any kind of like intimate scenes. Mm-hmm. So the medium would always be, oh, like we'll put like an Asian or like a Hispanic girl in our role. Uh, Eddie Murphy in uh, Golden Child. Aha, uh-huh, Charlotte Lewis. Mm. Yeah, so they they put somebody who's non-white, so it kind of be like fair game. A buffer. Yeah, so in this movie, they have some higher character who was Colin Child, thought to be the daughter of one of the kidnapped scientists that um Loveless took, but revealed at the end to be her husband. Um. And basically the whole movie or once she's introduced and, and, you know, she's um, her and Jim and Artemis meet like Kevin Klein and Will Smith, like they, they fight over the whole movie. Like, I think she was interested in me. No, I think she was looking at me and it goes up until the end when it's revealed. Like, like no, she wasn't interested in any of you. She was just playing. Guys. Yeah. They're both, they're both a fool, you know, at the end. Um, yeah. But um See, I kind of remember Desperado at that point, but I didn't see it. Uh, you know, it's rated R, so I didn't see that movie. Oh, I did see R-rated movies, don't get me wrong, but um, I only saw her in Desperado like on TV, like during the trailers. So this was the first time I really saw Salma Hayek because I didn't see Dust Till Dawn. I just saw her on the poster. Yeah. She was a big deal in the late 90s. You know, you could be talking about J-Lo, but Salma mm-hmm. Hayek was like, that whole thing with the Latin explosion was what I was saying before, because we had yeah, Living the Vida Loca was a big deal. Um a lot of you know that was a big deal in the late 90s i seen i i think i've seen her in something like i remember like i, I tweeted about this all the day that like the sinbad show i remember the sinbad show but i oh, yeah. cannot remember selma hayek being on it but for some reason like i remember selma hayek being in other things like obviously not desperado and not from dust or dawn but Actually, I think the first time I seen her was like in a like forgotten movie. Um, I think it was called like Freeway or something like that with like Lawrence Fishburne and like Stephen Baldwin. Yeah, like they were like escaped convicts and like yeah. she um she they they hide they hijacked the car that she was in and she was like Lawrence Fishburne's like lo- their love interest and that it was again another movie where they kind of like fight over her. Yo, I have that on VHS for some reason. I'm pretty sure I have that on VHS. It's that or the one with uh, Charlie Sheen, where he's like on, the, he's in a car like. Uh, I don't know that one with like Chrissy Swanson. Yeah, Chrissy. Yeah, it's either yeah, that one or I, these, I might have that. Freeway. All of these movies got to include at least one person. I became MAGA. <laughs> I don't know, man, but it's uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, it's I understand why this movie uh isn't really talked about now as much as like Men in Black, but um. Like how the 80s movies got popular like 15 years ago. Like, I think a lot of these early 2000s and late 90s movies are going to get more and more uh, nostalgic. We're going to start talking about them more. Uh, 
And I think uh, if Will Smith, you know, this isn't one of his bright spots. He's like you said before, he, um, he said, uh, you know, his biggest regret was not doing Matrix. You know, he's very, very uh, aware of his career. Mm-hmm. And since this wasn't one of his big hits, uh, you don't, he doesn't really talk about it. I mean, the song was a big hit, uh, but they'll always go back to Men in Black over Wild Wild West. And that's why you didn't have a third one with him. Yeah, I was I was offended when people called it a bad movie. I'm like, it's it's not Casablanca, but it's like, it's a movie. Yeah, it has a plot. Um, has a plot. It has fun parts in it. Like, but I don't know. I I feel like westerns. Like, you can't like go crazy with them. Like, even when they like. When you do like a straight western, like sometimes they do well because it's like what you see is what you get. But now when you got like these like uh Jonah Hex, which was based off a comic book, um, terrible movie. Cowboys versus aliens, which I think was based off a comic yeah. book, but it wasn't had great actors. Uh Daniel Craig and Harrison Ford and it didn't do great. And then you have Wild Wild West, and I think you know only people that want to see that are westerns. But you know, at the time that it came out, like I was familiar with Wild Wild West from the um, because I don't know if you remember, like TNT used to show the original on Saturday mornings. I'm sure I I came across it because like TNT it would play like Flipper, they would play uh, Gilligan's Island, they would play. Uh... Uh, Bonanza, uh, yeah. all those cowboy shows they would show too. So I'm sure I came across it. And my mom would always, she's the one who fed me all, all the knowledge of like Hollywood. Yeah. I know when it came out, she was telling me that it was based off of a show and, uh, you know, all that. So I knew it was based on something. Yeah. So, so that's why we're like anchored to it. Like, whereas now it's like episodes of like Bones and Franklin and no, not Franklin and Bash, like, um, Castle. And like, and when we were kids, they would show these old shows. So we kind of had a link with our parents when we were kids um, to when they were kids because they grew up watching these shows. Uh, speaking of Salma Hayek, you ever seen Banditas? Yeah. You know Tarantino was supposed to be in that? Like as an actor? Yeah. And he turned it down because of Sofia Coppola. Is Boo at the time? What she directed it, or she was in it? She was Tarantino's girl, and in real life, and she said, "Don't do it. Just don't." Oh, she told him not to do it. Yeah, just don't be in it. It's not why. Why are you gonna make this movie? And he's like, yeah, "It'd be fun. That would've been cool to see him in it." You know? He was like, "All, I right, like, all right, yeah, why not?" I like that movie. It's fun. It's an exploitation know. movie. You know, it's, it's uh, they had Young Guns, and then they had uh, Young Guns with Girls with uh, what's her name? Um, they did it with uh, Barrymore. She did like, a female version of it, you know, the uh, gunslingers when they're chicks. Almost a messed up one. Yeah, it was it was a female version of Young Guns. No, I had like a um, I had like a crush on like Penelope Cruz at the time, so I watched it when it came out. Um, then I found out she married like Javier Bardem, and I was I, I was like I gave up that dream. <laughs> Javier Bardem. Yeah, that's my well, point. Long conversation about uh, Vanilla Sky, Open Your Eyes, too. I had one earlier today. All right, Chug. Our part three is the third installment of our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, discussion, book club. Sure. For, 
Can I put that book down? Yeah, and we read a lot of it. We we read a bunch of chapters this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we started with uh, chapter eight, and it's entitled Lancer. All right. So this chapter starts off. It's day one of, uh, you know, Rick Dalton's uh, first day on the job on the pilot for Lancer, and he's remember he's hungover. Uh, he's all like, you know, he's still he's feeling the the whole hangover, but he's also nervous because he's like, he's usually the young, he's usually the star of the show. He's usually like the like. There's a part where he, um, he's he's at, he's uncomfortable. He's let's just say that. Mm-hmm. So um, th- well, in that in chapter eight, actually, before oh yeah, I forgot chapter eight actually is the backstory to Lancer. And I was totally into it. It's like basically like the myth mythos of like the characters in Lancer. That's what yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically like a family reunion. You meet the uh, Murdoch Lancer is like the old man who's running the ranch. And then we have uh, Johnny and we have uh, Scott. Yeah, Scott. So Scott is what? He's like a Boston, Harvard. Yeah, that was uh, an elder, elder yeah. son. Yeah, they're about the same age, but like he was with him less time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott was with him less time, so like both of their mothers skedaddled, as they would say, left the old man. They went back to New England um, for different reasons. Yeah, for different re- reasons. Very cultured. Um, he actually uh, was a uh, British cavalry member. He went out to India. He was a mm-hmm. Bengali uh, cavalryman. You know, where if you're familiar with that in the late 1800s you see them kind of like uh it went into africa india um and then we have the other son love his backstory i like it it's like yeah. a, he goes it's like a kill bill revenge story where so johnny uh the other brother his mother um was a mexican woman uh basically like he like turned a hoe, a hoe into a housewife that's what they're implying mm-hmm. and eventually you find out that like um like a guy who's who's uh who's who who can stay away from the bottle for a certain amount of time he can not drink for a day a week a year eventually he's going to fall back into his old ways there they imply that she fell back into her old ways she got kicked out uh in the middle of the night ran back down south of the border uh while she was a whole you know like a prostitute uh a uh, piece of shit you know like a customer kills her gets yeah. away with it so johnny goes on revenge yeah because he was he was like a um like a man of power in yeah. that area yeah. yeah yeah so he got away with it so instead of you know following justice and like the rule of land he did the old school revenge story and eventually after a decade right like he got everyone on the jury killed too like everyone involved with getting the guy off he kills and um but now he, you know, he's like a good-looking guy. They're both like good-looking sons. Uh, he describes him, you know, he has, the, you know, they call him red. Uh, you know, he has like everything is rojo, like everything's red. Mm-hmm. But that's basically just it. And like you meet Marabella, who is the youngest daughter. So there's three half siblings, and they're all back uh, on the ranch. Uh, yeah, what, are her- their, what are their motives? What are their motives? We don't know. That's the mystery behind it. So yeah. like. And all three is well, Trudy's mother died, um, because like a horse like threw her, and then after the funeral, yeah, I love Murdoch, that Murdoch Lancer, who's the patriarch, 
after the funeral, he went back and shot. He was so distraught, he shot that same horse. I love that line, though. Reading that line was great. It was like, and then soon after the funeral, he put a bullet in the horse's head. It's cathartic. You know, it's like, you know, cathartic to get it out. But that was a great line. Again, um, the narrator of this book, it sounds a lot like Tarantino, but it's not. I love the way uh, it's written. All right. So chapter nine is what I was trying to say. It's uh, Rick's first day on the job on set. He gets dropped off by our, our, our buddy, uh, Cliff. And it's think less hippie, more hell's angels. All right. So this is uh, first day on the job. He has he's a little antsy because he's playing a character he's not used to playing. Um, there's a line where they says you're a uh, Eisenhower actor in a Dennis Hopper Hollywood, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, that's that comes up later on, but um, I'll tell you basically chapter nine. You know, there's a whole thing where it's like he still needs the motivation from Cliff. He's like, hey man, like you're you're Cliff fucking Dalton. You know, like that's still going on. Uh, you have the first hints of the Bruce Lee situation. Which we'll yeah. get into later on, yeah. So, uh, yeah, basically, it's like you know, do I do what should I do? Do you know, um, you need me for anything? You know, that that type of deal. Uh, one less word of encouragement, one less pep talk, and uh, Rick is on his way, finds his spot in the on the set. But here's pep talk number two. This time it's from the director of the series, uh, Wanamaker, Sam Wanamaker. Yeah. And uh, in the movie, you see that he's uneasy. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio portrays uh, the character and he's very uneasy, but now you have his inner monologue and it's like, you see more of what he's thinking. And uh, Tarantino was very, uh, he used the N word a lot in the nineties movies and especially in like Django and everything. This uses the F word a lot. You notice that, right? Yeah. And again, as I've said about Hateful Eight and Django. Um, it is, it's just realism. Like, it's set in the 1960s. What was the whole point of, like, the gay rights movement? It was counterculture, right? And it was... He's emphasizing the viewpoint of the characters. Because anytime he says, like, you know fag or any of his variants he says it as their thoughts or something or as a quote it's not like oh like this like so-and-so walks in you know you could tell he's a so-and-so da 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 and then rick meets him like it, it's just done in their head again it just shows and they use the n-word too like in the chapter one, it was describing um George Spann and on uh, Squeaky. Mm. Oh, with uh, Mannix. Yeah, with the show the Mannix. Show Mannix right? yeah. Like, oh, the, the secretary is a yeah. n word, and she's like, yeah, it's an n word. It's like I, I, you know, at first, like looking at the word on a page is like whoa, but then you realize, it's like, you know this old ass like blind white man that was probably born in like 1880 um or even 1870 because he was like in his 80s in like 1969 um and this girl who's you know a white girl in the 60s like we've all seen those pictures 
of like Little Rock. <laughs> and she's in the Manson family, so okay. Exactly. You've seen the video when we when we were talking oh, about Oh yeah, yeah. Um, Fifty-four. <laughs> um, we were talking about um, Frankie Lyman. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's not out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> all right, all right, so how people talk. So like, uh, transcendentalism was like you know that's a, the the style of writing where they would use like nature to like describe things. You know, remember that's like that's what it was. QT Tarantino in this, everything is like he does the same thing, but it's with like blue collar like cars. Like he's describing them like uh. Sam Wanamaker is like high octane, like over the top, full gear, and Rick Dalton is like is a quarter low in his gas. Like the way he's describing how they are, it's like with like muscle cars and stuff, which is like of the time. And he does that throughout the chapter, and it's great. Uh, you get a you get a, you get an idea of like the energies coming off both the guys. Wanamaker gives him a pep talk. Um, you know, again, uh, uh, Rick is like, oh man, I, I don't look like some hippie faggot. You know, he's doing the whole thing, and then right away he's like. Rebecca and like, he's like eyeing them up and again another thing in this book it's about like the uh, how people deal with each other sexually so it's like he can tell that like the girl Rebecca and him are like, sleeping together like you know that's a, day, a big thing in this book where like Roman plans he can tell that Stephen Queen has been with his wife and uh, but he's he's been with that guy's ex-fiance so like, that's a real part of like uh, hierarchy or like the way people deal with each other is a lot of sexual stuff yeah uh, but yeah so the pep talk he's like you know he wanted to wear the mustache. You know, the lead wanted to wear the mustache, but he's not going to get to. I'm going to wear the mustache. So that gets him kind of excited and kind of gets him off. And he's like, all right, I'm ready yeah. to do this role because, you know, again, this is where it happens where it's like. Uh, because at this point, he's remember the whole point of the movie is like he's down on himself and he feels like his time has already passed. So any little win that he could get over like the new swinging dick. Mm-hmm. As they say in a book, you know, it, it feels like, you know, some, you know, I don't know the notch to the belt. Yeah. So like he, he's getting off on pissing off the other actor. That's like his motivation. He's mm-hmm. like, what's, what's my motivation? Uh, the other guy's annoyed that you, you're get to, you know, you get to look like the, you know, the cool look. Uh, so, you know, Rick is playing the heavy in this one. Uh, and now he's ready to go. You know, he's getting pumped up from him. Um he has to come to real, realize that he has to play different roles. Cause like at one point he says the Brio cream generation is dead, you know, the, cause he was a big star in the fifties and the early sixties. Uh, like I said earlier with the Eisenhower actor and uh, Dennis Hopper Hollywood. So now he's going to look like more of like a spaghetti Western or uh, just like easy rider. Um, so he's a little uneasy about it. He's like, can you even tell that, you know, this is, this is me. And so it's called acting honey, you know, so uh, basically, it's him getting comfortable in his own skin, and he has all these layers over him. They give him like the hippie hair and everything. Yeah, and he tells them like um, they talk about like Shakespeare, Shakespeare, like a little bit. Mm-hmm. Hamlet, yeah, they t- he describes him as that. Yeah, and he was like, I never. He, he was like, Have you done theater? And he's like, No, I never did any like theater work. So I think that in of itself like exposed that like Rick Dalton just assume he was just going to be like Rick Dalton in every single role that he played whereas like being an actor means you kind of got to like you have to become that role um, which is ironically in a film like um, Swords is played by Al Pacino and it's like think about how many times like Al Pacino like leaned real heavy like you can't sit down and say like 
all right, in this movie, Al Pacino is just Al Pacino as, you know, he, he leans into these roles. Like, a lot of people would try to say, like, Carlito and Tony Montana are, like, the same character. It's like, when you watch Carlito's Way and Scarface, you could easily tell the difference. Way different. Yeah, even, like, like his Hispanic, his Spanish, like, dialect is different. Well, Puerto Rican and then Cuban. Uh, exactly. But like Puerto Rican, um, they're more. Uh, well, first off, Puerto Ricans are like American, so like he's he has that going. You know, he's a New Yorker. Um, uh, he, when he plays Scarface, uh, when he's in the Scarface movie, he's more like. Um, there's nothing not not much deeper than like his need to be in charge and power and stuff like that. Carlito is more uh, sensitive and shit. You know, he can. It's very evident. And guess yeah. what? Like he has like a fifty-year acting career. Al Pacino. Exactly. <laughs> That's all you gotta say. That's not that that thing about Al Pacino. I was so nervous to work with Al Pacino, and then uh, I had to break the ice with him. And I'm next to him, and Al Pacino did it for me. He goes up to him, "Hey, baby, you see that moon? That's our moon, baby. That's <laughs> ours." And that was the first time they talked to this actor and him. That's how they broke the ice. <laughs> Chapter ten, misadventure. Here we go. Cliff. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, this is the opening line of the chapter. The minute Cliff shot his wife with the shark gun, he knew it was a bad idea. Great yeah. line. They elaborated on it. Um, it was like a like a thirty second um scene in a movie, and that may even be like a generous um or, uh, yeah, es- yeah, estimation. They actually had um was that Rebecca Gayhart? I don't remember. I didn't rewatch it. Yeah. I think it was her. Um, People know her from like Jawbreaker, like music videos and stuff. She was on different things, but she played the role. Um, Actually, they did it like a lot of justice, especially when you read what was said in that chapter where it's like, well, everybody knew like she was like an ass, like Billy was like a pain in the ass and um when she wasn't like yelling she was drinking and when she drank she yelled and like all that stuff yeah so it's like billy's boat booth mm-hmm. you know so like um so she he she gets shot and she's cut in half and it's kind of like over the top and it's like uh they retell their like story together while he's holding her together literally yeah. holding and they were like, holding it together literally you know and they were like like the most loving they've probably been in their whole marriage while, like when she was dying yeah, doing and, the baby talk. Yeah, and he was holding it, holding her um, halves together because she was basically broken in half. And then by the time like the Coast Guard came, this was over seven hours. Then the Coast Guard came, and then like the transfer from the one boat to like the Coast Guard boat was when she died. <laughs> well, think about it like this: it's on a boat. All right, and we're talking about open secrets in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Today I'm talking to you. Who comes to mind first? Uh, Harvey Weinstein, um, Bill Cosby comes to mind. Uh, things that people talked about. Oh, this is going on, but that, it never really like, came to complete light. You know, n- the, nothing was ever. No actions were taken until recently. Whoa. So you, so you had these open secrets, and then it's on a boat. There's an infamous thing that happened with Robert Wagner and now yeah. West. Yeah. yeah. So it's, that's why it's on. A, yeah. So that's why I thought that. That's why the significance of it being on a boat. Um, I don't know anything. And then he he got off because of like lack of evidence. 
which kind of makes sense because it's like if you you got to think of it um obviously like how law in this country is supposed to work is like innocent until proven guilty so you have to assume that he's innocent so if he's on a if he says his, him and his wife were on this boat in the open sea together and they were um fly fishing or whatever harpoon fishing and he was holding a harpoon and he accidentally killed her with it it's gonna be quite the un- uphill climb to prove that there was intention and as he tells it he was you know he he saw it, it's like i don't he cliff's character was seemingly um he doesn't even know if he did it yeah, intentionally. Yeah. It's, like, it's like did i i don't remember like he blacked out <laughs> yeah. um but again with the court system in america it's theater too you know mm-hmm. like performance if you have a better uh, like with oj another thing that happened in hollywood with nicole brown that uh, there was rumors of him in the 80s with her uh there was like domestic violence shit like that and then when it came out in court uh you know the theater of it all you know and we're talking about actors and uh, you know this glove you know you must have quit glove don't fit you must have quit you remember that you remember and it's like the yeah. facts it's a performance of it uh so basically he gets away with murder on set literally and figuratively you know he gets away with murder so that's yeah. why people don't like him on set uh we feel uh, that came up too that uh cliff couldn't work on uh lancer because of his reputation yeah and it was um it's kind of like commentary on society today where it's just like even though you've been and, and it's good that you brought up like oj simpson where it's like even though you've been acquitted in a court of law, what matters is public opinion. How have you been judged in the court of public opinion? And in his case, it was like the sunk community. So he already had a strike against him where people was like, he killed his wife um, and got away with it. That was the, the, um, the story in the stunt community but in our job they really elaborated on the legend of cliff booth and it said that his job was basically as a ringer um in the boxing community you know a ringer is like a guy who you know could go in and you could bet money on and he's gonna win the fight because the other guys like either gonna take a fall or he's really like good at it but they would hire Cliff Booth to play, um, to basically just come on set and work that one day, um, in situations where, um, you know, there was somebody on the set that needed their ass kicked, especially for the stunt community with people who would, um, what they refer to in the book as tagging which is when, you know, they're supposed to do stunts, stunt fighting, and the actor lands a punch. Because that's one of the things, like, they elaborated elaborated on that, like, the stunt community hates when actors take it upon themselves to do their own stunts because usually they're not coordinated to, you know, stop. They, you know, they're not coordinated enough to only go three quarters of the way so one of the famous people since we talked about wild wild west was um robert conrad and did it say that he beat him up one episode and got fired 
Oh no! Well, well, it's in another chapter that they go into it in depth and later on. But it's um, the rumor. Uh, well, well, they talk about it, like seven hundred bucks and like uh, a case of beer go in there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I'm not sure if um, I don't know. Uh, but t- let me first let me say something about tagging. And you said about. Uh, Three of the forests of the way. All right, so I have to think about wrestling, okay? So tagging, they talk about that in wrestling, too, where uh, being stiff mm-hmm. in wrestling. That's the thing, too, where, like, this guy's too stiff. You got to get a receipt next time because he uh, he was potatoing me. Uh, and, you, and you say, like, a Bret Hart looked like he was actually hitting you, but he, he wasn't hurting you. So everyone loved working with Brett. So it's kind of like I love working with Clip, but I hate working with a guy, an actor. Yeah, something who to... he prided himself on to this day. Yeah. So it's like that, um, but yeah, we keep going with the uh, Wild Wild West because they they talk about it. Yeah, well, he Robert Conrad was one of the people, and he 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 was one of the situations where he um got his ass kicked and got fired. You know, Cliff got fired, and it was an interesting thing when I was reading a book and I tweeted it when I was reading it because it was like, yeah, he got seven hundred bucks and then like he didn't have to pay for a drink. Um, or he would have a case of beer, and I was just like, you know, anytime you hear a story, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. just give me a case of beer and we even da da da. And it, I like it, it like dawned on me for a second. It was like, for some reason, even though you can afford a case of beer or you can afford a drink, somebody buying it for you means so much more that it feels almost like they paid like. 10 times as much as you would have paid for it. So I always thought, like, when I was reading it, it just dawned on me, like, how rewarding it is. Um, 700, like, on top of 700 extra dollars was a um, case of beer. Yeah, it's like a warrior thing, too. Like, you get the respect from your peers and uh, taste that much better. Yeah. Uh, but I was just reading it. I was like, you know, being like a ringer is like a dream job. I mean, you imagine just getting hired to a job every day where it's just like like you, you know how you you complain about like the people work. you work with like if they hire me for one day i was just like yo shook's coming here he's gonna swap the shit out the shit. Yeah. yeah like i, I wish I, I could have that job it would be Th- such a beautiful thing you say the thing that i am thinking you yeah. know and you do it um one thing i want to say about the next chapter chapter 11 the twinkie truck mm-hmm. uh so basically this is charlie this is this takes place you got a. uh, uh cliff on the on the roof and he's yeah. uh, he's watching this which reminds me of a western where a guy on a canyon on uh, top of a cliff mm. his name is cliff watching all this shit happen but basically with charlie manson he knows um or i, had, I have actually i have notes on this that i want to all right so this is about charlie manson in the music industry you know you got uh they go into they go into the whole uh basically talking about Charlie Manson in the music industry, uh, trying to be a rock star, you mm-hmm. see the kind of the, um, the human, humanizing him where he's not this little like spirit. That's like a guru, you know, like, uh, you know, floating around, like giving these words of inspiration to these family. Yeah. He's, was, he's fucking weak. He looks weak. Yeah. Cause it, it was kind of like, um, you know how people say like Hitler was like a failed artist. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of the same way that, like, Charles Manson was, like, a failed musician. Like, nobody wanted to work with him. Uh, and that's the 
I mean, not the, the reason, but it's part of the inspiration for them to do such evil things. It's because they wanted to do certain things and weren't successful at it. Yeah, so like the spiritual leader was like a means to an end of being a rock star. He wanted to be the freaking Beatles, you know, he loved bubblegum music. Um, so like him getting stood up, uh, no, no, the guy Terry no shows the uh, open house of him performing. So, you know, it made him look weak in front of his family. And it reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, he's a con man. Charlie Manson's a con man. We've, we're familiar with con men. We just had one for a, co- a couple of years. Um, so like Donald Trump, I'm going to talk about him real quick. <laughs> uh, so basically, remember how shocked he looked when he won in 2016? He was like, yeah. like he was not there. He, he was used, I've always felt. Yeah. He, he was using the election to get his new news. He was going to do a new news channel or whatever. And that was like kind of the means to the end. It was to get the name Trump out there for the next project. And he just ended up becoming the president. But that was kind of like the means to, to, to it. And then, you know, this whole thing happened. The MAGA family. Uh, <laughs> MAGA family. The yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's one thing. So when Charlie Manson goes up to the house, it's uh, he thinks that's the guy Terry's house, but he moved out. It's the house where Roman Polanski and uh, Sharon Tate are now. And they're like, oh, no, they're not here right now. The owner's in the back. So he talks to the guy in the back. That's not that. You know, that just shows that he's still trying and he looks weak in front of the guy and the guy's basically saying, get out of here. Uh, but he was invited back. That's important because mm-hmm. of the mythology of vampires. So when uh, when he op- when they opened the door for him, Sharon Tate, the, the, the poster was the Fearless Vampire Killers, which is like the big hit he had over. Well, Sebring opened the door for him. Yeah, whoever. But they opened the door mm-hmm. and it's, it's Sebring, uh, Sharon Tate's ex, who's living with them, ex-fiance. And her, and that's like you know that that's Roman Polanski's thing with you know Sharon Tate was the vampire killers. And I just just the idea of a vampire, you have to invite them in. And Charlie Manson's this little figure that they're trying to he Tarantino's invoking the whole vampire thing, you know, bloodsucker thing. That's what I got from them showing the poster. I like that. I like that type of that type of stuff. Uh, and then you know, what's the significance of the Twinkie truck? Did you think anything of it? I think it's because it's like fake. Like hollow, it's not. It's just like it looks pretty, but it doesn't give you anything. Like empty, emptiness. I don't know. I, I I'm looking into it deep. I mean, perhaps. I, I, you, maybe you saw something and I didn't. I did find it peculiar that it was specifically like a Twinkie truck because I think in a movie, I thought like when I watched the movie, I thought it was like an ice cream truck. Yeah. Uh, you know, like in the same way that like. You know, people go to junkyards and they need a car and they'll find like an old um, police car. And at the same time, you know, maybe he needed a van and he went somewhere and they had like an old like ice cream van for like cheap. And that's all they could afford. So you mentioned a police car and junk. It reminds me of uh, Always Sunny. And in Always Sunny, uh, mm-hmm. Matt goes, everything I say is very deliberate. So mm-hmm. everything he does in this book is deliberate. So I, we'll figure out why is it Twinkie. Well, who knows? Maybe whatever. Uh, so chapter 12 is next, and this is a long one. This is like a, a big chapter. You can call me Marabella. All right, so this is like the scene with... Yeah. Uh, I mean, but before we think, it, they had like a little um, interaction mm. between Cliff and... Um, between Cliff and, and Charles Manson, where Charles Manson was trying to like, you know, give him like salutation or whatever, and like Cliff was just staring at him like a weirdo. 
Um, and it was interesting because it was like one of my favorite. I, I feel like this whole section that we read this week will it involve like virtually like all of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood probably had like the best middle section of any of his films to be honest with you like in the the middle the middle part of the movie like the 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 entree was i thought one of the best like every other movie it's either it plays out over the spanner film or it has a really big climax but this one i feel like all of the like really really good like acting and like written scenes were in the middle and they were elaborated on in this section and again like elaboration has a lot more depth um i've noticed in his recent films like he's inserted like his narration to the films but you know it's been like minimal Whereas in this book, he was able to, like, expand and, like, you know, describe things that he wasn't able to describe in, you know, a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour film. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so we have the next one. Uh, it's, again, it's it's elaborating on uh, Rick Dalton's um, first day on the job. Uh, he's getting comfortable with himself in his new look, Caleb, his character. Um, you know, he's like, he's dressed with like the, uh, easy rider type, uh, groovy. He's looking groovy. Uh, you know, it's lunchtime. So like, you know, wild west shows, they always talk about ghost towns and shit. And like, so like basically the set is turning into a ghost town where it's him just walking around. Uh, so, all right. So I'm going to, so the part where he keeps saying, I don't want to look like a hippie F, you know? It reminds me of an actor now who was popular in the 90s or 2000s saying, come on, man, what is this, some like woke shit? You know, like him walking around like, I don't look like a woke at, you know. So that's why I get like where he's like, all right, maybe I can get into this role. All right, whatever. I like it. Uh, and he sits next to uh, Maribel, the child actor. Um, there's one part that, that uh, jumped out at me where he's like, uh, when he's asked, like, do you prefer the good guy or, or being the bad guy? And he's like, I like being the good guy. And he's like, when the bad guy, like, the bad guy always loses at the end, you know? And she's like, so? He's like, well, I don't want to look like I can lose, you know? It's like a wrestling thing, you know? The heel loses. Mm-hmm. And she's like, come on, like, uh, the bad guy's supposed to lose, like, and, um, you know, embrace it. Embrace, embrace your role. Again, it, it, this actor's been around for 20-something years, and he's, like, lear- being taught by an eight-year-old how to act, you know? That's, like, the the uh, irony of it. Uh, he brings up, Is this where he brings up um, the younger... Yeah, he brings up uh, another pilot he worked on. He's like with an eleven-year-old, and he's saying like, "Well, if that show got picked up, he could have been. I could have been with him for years. We could have been tied together. He could have been. Hey, he could have been like a younger brother to me. But uh, show never, show never got picked up, and then nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's basically saying that he's, you know, he has a relationship with child actors before, but this one's different. Um, it's kind of meta because he's reading a he's reading a pulp western book, and we're reading a pulp western book, pretty much. Um, What's this? Why she's reading? She's reading Disney. Like, uh, that mean anything to you? She's reading yeah, a book. She was about reading Disney. like the autobiography of or biography of Walt Disney. So you know, it was talking. You know, talking about him as like a genius because, you know, if you think about it, at this time, nineteen sixty nine, two years before Disney World opened, 
um, 10 years, 10 or more years after Disneyland had opened up, um, all of these movies that became ingrained with American culture, uh, he had his like weekly show. So he was very, um, he was very admirable. His genius was admirable. And this was like, not really, not even like a decade after, like within the same decade that he died. So, you know, if you had to liken, liken it to somebody, imagine, think about all of the, the shit that came out after Steve Jobs died. You know, where people was like, oh, Steve Jobs did this, Steve Jobs did that. Let's move, make a movie about Steve Jobs. Let's make another movie about Steve Jobs. Like, it, like it was Walt Disney at that point was that same person. Yeah, like the face of something. Um, like, a matter of fact, even before you even go on, like to elaborate on that, like today, and even as kids, we probably thought of like Disney, the name Disney as a brand. Whereas, like back then, like Dis- Walt Disney was still a person. The mm-hmm. name Disney was still associated with that man, like the like actual Ni- man, like Nike, Nike. You know. He so was Nike. a real per- yeah yeah he was a real guy you know at that point now it's like Nike just represents the sneaker and you know what I mean like that, no, the name of the country the name of the company is Nike but his name is yeah. Nike yeah yeah whatever yeah that's what I meant like he was a real person I thought it was I thought it was not pronounced Knight Nike or whatever. no it was Knight like as in like uh ah okay yeah. so um yeah so that I was thinking about that because in the sixties you also had um a lot of disney westerns and uh what's his name um kurt russell worked on it and that was a disney he was a disney kid yeah another head nod to, uh, tip of the cat to our buddy um yeah i like the way he the inner monologue is great here because you don't get it in the movie yeah he uh, talked about her like a grown-ass person it was like betty davis pint-sized betty davis yeah he, he, every word imaginable he, he said it and he gave it to her and hey I like when she's like, you know, like, I'm an actor, not an actress, you know. That's very that's relatable. Redundant. It's funny because I, I was actually had like a little interaction on social media where I was saying, I was like, I don't even say the term actress anymore. I'm Because people still use it. And I'm like, you're not as progressive as you think. You're still saying actress. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just actor, female actor, male actor, especially in this day and age where people don't assume any gender you know just saying actor is enough waiter yeah you do a server yeah. not a waiter or waitress anymore uh the sweet body of deborah chapter 13 all right so this was cool because uh we're gonna get into the whole bruce lee incident mm-hmm. as in quotes but they also talk about jim brown yeah which is yeah. you know it's a, you know it's another moment there you go one of my favorite movies of all time the 100 rifles you know, we talked about, you know, interracial relationships in film. This was like the first movie that had like an interracial like love scene between Jim Brown and Raquel Welsh. It also stars the late, great Burt Reynolds, who was, you know, supposed to play George Spann in this movie, but died before they started shooting. shooting. Um, also, he- Eric Braden, if anybody knows him, Victor from Young and the Restless was also in this film. Great movie. I love this movie. Burt Reynolds did get to uh, rehearse, though, as the character George. Yeah. Man. So that's a, I don't, I'm not sure if they filmed it. Um, 
but yeah, so they have like the, there's rumors of Cliff uh, either, you know, knocking out Jim Brown. Like that's a, like a fantasy, you know, like. Yeah, they're saying like that one was like made up. Yeah, because yeah, in this well, universe, I want to yeah. like elaborate, like establish that yeah. in this universe because um, there's an issue with the Bruce Lee fight that I'm gonna bring up that's been recurring since the movie um, has been released two years ago this week, yeah. and just got brought back into the forefront with the book because I guess in his family's eyes, they kind of like double down on, um, you know, offending him according to them uh, and um yeah so there's a multiple choice part where it's like either a cliff knocks out jim brown or b you know that or c and then or d none of the above yeah. uh, i like that i like that's meta like writing like um yeah so this is like the four things that cliff is known for it used to be his military career but now after the whole death of his wife that supersedes it now so that's like what he's known for and then this is where they say like he's known for being a ringer uh i think yeah so so like they go into the whole in-depth look at like 700 bucks uh don't don't pay for a drink at the hotel bar uh shut up like an actor on the set so that's why they mentioned uh the wild wild west but they also mentioned bruce lee and he's trying to the narrator tarantino pretty much he's like all right this is before bruce lee was bruce lee you know he was still uh trying to make it in hollywood they actually he compares him to uh to Charlie Manson, did you notice okay. that part? Yeah. But he go he mentions it. He goes the same way that Manson would uh, hang out with Beach Boy guys and um, try to be to be a rock star. Uh, Bruce Lee would be like a trainer to the stars. That was his means to get into you know being a uh, Hollywood star. Mm-hmm. I knew that already. I knew all about that. Uh, so they say that. So now it makes more sense. Like why even bring it up? It's because. In the book, not in the movie, but in the book, they mentioned that Bruce Lee was in talks with Polanski to work on a project. So he's now tied into the story. Yeah. Uh, again, Bruce Lee is a, uh, uh, what's the word? Petite guy. Same with Polanski. You yeah. know, that's another thing he always brings up. So they mentioned that he had a relationship with Polanski. So let's get into the controversy. Yeah. So, you know, Sharon Lee is saying, like, it's, it was disrespectful, um, his portrayal in the film and now in the book because it makes him like boastful and it makes him look, look makes him look boastful and arrogant. But Quentin Tarantino's inspiration for this character was um Ivan Bell, I believe. Yeah, someone like who, who who's like an actual like stunt person and it was his story that in the stunt community like Bruce Lee would be very, very like boastful and he would actually be the one and he would beat the shit out of American stuntmen and he had that reputation. Like, so it wasn't like something like he just made up. It's just a piece of information and he took it and then elaborated on it. But again, these are fictional characters. Cliff Booth, like spoiler alert, if you've not seen a fucking movie, Sharon Tate doesn't get killed. Is Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's, um, Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski's, and Sharon Tate's son, I mean, child alive today? No. Did the Manson family get murdered before they could commit those crimes? No. It's all a fictional retelling. Like, Bruce Lee in the book is not Bruce Lee in real life. 
like perhaps Bruce Lee would have beat the shit out of Brad Pitt. As a matter of fact, Brad Pitt and I forgot who else it was. It was like Brad Pitt and his stuntman, like Quentin Tarantino actually wanted a more elaborate fight scene. And those two were like, nah, like I'm like Bruce Lee would not get beat up like that bad. You know, so it could have been a lot worse and it wasn't. And the actor that's portrayed him has, you know, he he's actually um denounced his role in the film because he, he felt it was disrespectful. Again, I don't see how it is. I mean, if you want to talk about disrespect, like Game of Death use footage from Bruce Lee's um funeral and use cardboard cutouts and all kind of different like movie Ouch. magic things to make it seem like he was alive when he was it wasn't him and then um Sharon Lee's brother Brandon Lee famously died because he was shot with a prop gun that was uh didn't have blanks in them had real bullets and they still released the crow um and these are actual events that disrespect your family. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be offended by those events, but I think like having your father lose a two out of three fight to, um, you know, a fictional stuntman is like not the worst thing a movie has done to your family. Um, even in the fight, he didn't come out with like a scratch. It ain't like he was put in the hospital or something like that. The fact that he beats Bruce Lee in the thing is to show how it's hyping up Bruce Lee. Like, wow, this character beat up the great Bruce Lee. You know, that's like if he knocked out Muhammad Ali. Wow, he knocked out the great. It's not like he's saying, "Oh, I'm better than Muhammad Ali because he's better than every black." Uh, like, they go into this whole crazy thing where it's like, like, but it's not a documentary. That's this is the argument for everything. Is always like, you have to make it like, yeah. It's funny. Look at like um, a couple weeks ago. Floyd Mayweather, that's actually Floyd Mayweather. He made a whole like joke of his career by fucking having an even fight against a, a YouTuber, you know, like, and that's like a real thing that happened. I'm like, this is this is fictional, like it's movie line. It's 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 an escape. Um, I, I know some, something where I was hyped to see Bruce Lee. I think we all already have our opinion of Bruce Lee, which is like a high, a very like high one. I have a poster of him right here. I always say this. Well, I used to say this as a kid, like um, 15 years ago, I would always say pop culture profits or something. I use the word like that, prop that like crossed uh, cultures and cross like race and all that. I always said, you know, like Bruce Lee, you know, Michael Jordan, uh, even like Muhammad Ali, like people all look up to him, crossing, you know, different barriers. And uh, that's the thing that comes up too. People got offended by him saying American uh, stuntman because Bruce Lee, he was born in uh, California. But the point is that Bruce Lee spent half his career also in Hong Kong. Yeah, you know, like, he, he so made, that's the, that's that's the distinction. Bones, and then he came back over in San Francisco, San Francisco and then he, he got into the um you know film industry there so even though he was born in america he was raised or his his profile was at least raised you know in in uh, in hong kong cinema and 
and Hong Kong was also Western at the time. You know, they were British. Um, but he was a child actor too. So that's a lot of stuff that uh, Bruce Lee was deeper than, you know, this, this myth that they have of him. He was, you know, he was an actor and everything. Um, I don't know. I think the point of him beating Bruce Lee is to show that, wow, you beat the great, like it's supposed to be a compliment, but mm-hmm. it's not taken as a compliment. When I saw this in theaters, this is before I saw anything on the internet or they didn't really talk about it. Um, I think even at that time I wasn't really on Twitter. Uh, so I went into it going, wow, that was a good scene. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I didn't go into it like where I, I, it was uncomfortable. I, I thought like I had it, it didn't, it wasn't meant to diminish like Bruce Lee. I think it was supposed to enhance Cliff Booth to be like, oh, this dude's like a badass. You know, yeah. especially if you're making a movie about like somebody's like gopher and there's like this mystery about him and like this mystery, mystery badass about him. Like, a matter of fact, like put it this way, like if there wasn't that scene of him and Bruce Lee fighting, right? Um, take that scene out of it, right? The scene at the end, the climax of the movie, when you know the the um La Bianca Cielo Drive murders were gonna happen, or the La Bianca Tate murders were gonna happen on Cielo Drive, and Rick and Cliff like squash it, right? wouldn't seem like out of place without that Bruce Lee scene because we all knew like he was a badass and he was high off acid and he was beating the shit out of these kids. I mean, sure, you could look back at like the scene on the Spawn Ranch, which I assume is going to be in next week's episode in the book when we read it. But in the movie, the scene on Spawn Ranch when he beats the shit out of Tex and the, the kids there. You know, he's of sound mind, so you'd figure of sound mind he would beat the shit out of these kids. But if you don't include the Bruce Lee scene, you know, the fact that he's high off acid in the last scene, it would seem like farcical. But this establishing that, yo, like, you know, in sound mind, he could go toe to toe with Bruce Lee, it makes the fact that like him being able to like beat up some people actually trying to murder him would um would actually happen because you know while high on acid it it seems like logical so to speak because like yo like one of the greatest martial artists in the history of man or at least the ones that we knew he you know he was able to beat that person up yeah, it's it's fantasy booking. It's like when you're in the barbershop, like they were told by like the boxers can you know like in uh, coming to America with that famous scene. Joe Lewis's ass. Yeah, that's basically what it is. It's like you know, it's a fantasy pissing contest. There. Yeah. Ch- chapter fourteen. All right, I have a little back uh, backstory to this. The Wrecking Crew. So this is the scene where Sharon Tate sees her movie, the uh, the movie with Dean Martin, uh, the Wrecking Crew. Um, yeah. So all week long. Uh, well, when I was resting, I didn't really feel well. I watched a lot of podcasts with Tarantino and interviews with Tarantino. And apparently um, the part uh, where Sharon Tate's like, that's my name here on the poster. And they, oh, we'll take a picture? And they take a picture? That happened to Tarantino when he saw True Romance. He goes, that's my name. Yeah, on the poster. He goes, and it was the same theater in LA. He was like, that's my name. Can I get in? <laughs> He's like, yeah. uh. So basically, it's like, so in the movie, I was like, all right, I get it. Um, it was kind of like I don't want to say the weakest, but it's just like it felt the most out of place a little bit. Because mm-hmm. like Sharon Tate, I know like 
everyone was saying, oh, they needed more and more on Sharon Tate. Yeah. But, uh, but this is her like spotlight moment. But now it makes more sense that it's autobiographical because Tarantino saw himself in this apparently when he saw uh, when he saw True Romance because his name was on it, but he wasn't a star yet. Yeah, like the again the whole movie, the whole book like adds depth to the characters and certain scenes of the movie. And Tarantino got like a lot of heat. Like I remember he had like a tense um back and forth with like a reporter at Khan. No, yeah. He goes, um, I disagree with your um I don't agree with your um hypothesis. Yeah, because it's not a Sharon Tate movie. It's just a movie set in Hollywood. Um during the time that Sharon Tate's murders happened. Um and it's it's about it's not about Sharon Tate, it's about Sharon Tate's neighbors. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, it's it's, it's about her neighbors. And I think Margot Robbie did excellent acting in it with the little the few scenes that she had. Um, which was by design. It was not a Sharon Tate movie. There's a movie that came out where uh, it just happens to take place, I think, around the time John Lennon gets killed. But it's not a John Lennon movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like that, where, like, it has something to do with it, but it's not like... That's like me going, how come there's not more scenes of John Lennon? Yeah. I forgot what movie or, it was. Or, like, even, like, Forrest Gump. Like, yeah, why, yeah, yeah. why don't they feature John F. Kennedy more or Elvis? Mm-hmm. Like, no, nah, like, that's used as background. It's, like, as if you're living in Hollywood. Um, so to speak, think of it like, prime example, Summer of Sam by Spike Lee. Mm. Does anybody be like, oh, well, what, like, why, why didn't Dave Berkowitz get more, more, um, scenes? Like, nah, it was the backdrop. It was New York in 1977 with the backdrop of the serial killer. And we're going to include some scenes with the serial killer. But it's going to be sprinkled in. It's not about the serial killer. It's not a movie about the serial killer. It's about these people living in New York amidst these things happening. Um, and I, like, I, I was glad like he stood his ground. He's, he's always stood his ground. As a matter of fact, one of the things he's talked about this week, unfortunately, on Joe Rogan's show, is just like the thing that made him, um, that gave him like a long career in cinema is just the fact that he doesn't hold back the movies he wants to make. He makes them. Um, he doesn't make movies with a lot of like study, studio influence, and which is astounding considering like a lot of the movies that he's made. He's made with um, Harvey Weinstein, you know, who's known to be very like um, known to micromanage um, amongst yeah. other things. They would say if 99% of the people in this, in the studio uh, loved the movie and he didn't like it, it wouldn't be made. If he liked it and 99% of the people hated it, it would be made. You know, yeah. um, That's a good point. Uh, that made me think of uh, going back, because all week long, last week or two, I've been watching old interviews of Tarantino from 2015. Uh, from this year, 2015, all the way back to 92. Uh, and everything he said, like he did. Like mm-hmm. he literally, like in 90, in the 97, he was talking about writing books. Uh, he was said, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to, I'm going to write novels one day when I stop making films. This is 96, 97, when he's on Charlie Rose. 
2015, he said, the next thing I'm doing is probably a book, as we said, after he did uh, Hateful Eight. And then, so uh, everything he says, he basically does. Um, the one thing that hasn't happened yet is Kill Bill 3. And he says, oh, maybe that might be the last movie, Kill Bill 3. It might be the last one. Yeah. Like, that seems like all far-fetched. He said that in 2004, 2003, 2004. But he also said the same thing about writing a book in 97. And, he, and we're reading the book now on our podcast right now. Um, all right. That's how he talks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think the next thing he does, like he says, oh, I'm going to do Hateful Eight. I'm going to have it uh, on Broadway or in theaters, staged production. And I want to see other actors take my words and do it differently. Like, that's his next goal. Mm-hmm. And I and I, there's, I'm, I don't doubt it that he'll do it because he did it with the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. his ground. Mm-hmm. Chapter 15. Uh, you're a natural born Edmund. All right, so this scene is another one with Rick Dalton and uh, as the character Caleb on Lancer, and uh, it's a quick one. It's mm-hmm. uh, he's getting another pep talk. It's like uh, it's like all in the eyes. Uh, he kind of um, this is where he brings up Shakespeare, uh, and he says like you remind me of Hamlet, and who's Hamlet? You know, he's like oh he's angry angry man. Yeah. So basically he's like you're an ang- he is a ang- angry man. That's his, that's who he's playing, angry uh, aging star. Yeah, and like the last quick notes, um, you know, it kind of changed up like Cliff's day where like, you know, he did the, he had to fix the answer. So he dropped them. It, it was cool because it kind of like clarified like the timeline because in a movie he dropped um, Rick off at eight and he was like, all right, I don't really, I don't need you until you got to like pick me up, but just do the thing with the antenna. Mm-hmm. And um he did the thing with the antenna and then kind of had like a whole day and i was kind of like eight in the morning and in my head i'm thinking like regular old like work like we we do and i'm thinking like oh he probably has to pick him up at like two in the afternoon or something like that and it's like no it's like he drops him off at like 8 a.m and then pick he, the, the pickup time is like 7 15 or 7 30 yeah rap is like what time is rap and he's like 7 30 or whatever and he's like yeah okay. so it kind of like gave you like an idea of like the how like all that stuff that was what all that stuff that eventually happened happened and then mm-hmm. like he actually in a movie he straight up picks up pussycat but in the book, it's like, no, nah, he goes to, like, this, like, erotic movie theater and then watches, like, like a porno, like, double feature um, instead. And the, the chapter just ends there. So, I don't know, maybe in the next chapter, he sees that pussycat still, like, outside looking for a ride, and he gives it to her. Yeah, uh, a few things happen in these chapters where I noticed it, finally, that words dialogue from different scenes were changed like yeah. things that schwartz said was uh, was in the book he says it but in the movie it was given to i think timothy elephant or someone gets that his dialogue so mm-hmm. i'm already seeing it being changed a few times in the like before you were saying this is like your most this movie had the best like middle like the meat on the meat on the bone like this part was uh this part so yeah this is like all the famous things like when you think of the movie you think of the 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 DiCaprio crying with the gun. He's like, yes, like this is the best acting ever. Like that was a big shot. That was a big moment. And we're yeah. seeing it now. So, uh, uh, I mean, I'm excited. Like I re- I love the things that aren't in the movie. Like see, knowing that, uh, Rick eventually is on Carson in the seventies. Uh, I love that. Cause like 
it's like Mad Men. I wanted to see Mad Men in the eighties. You know, I I like to see them continuing. Yeah, yeah. Characters that I like. Yeah. That's where we left off on this part. Um, yeah, we're getting more into the meat of it. Yeah, we're almost. I think we like three, like almost to the last like third of the book. So we'll we'll see what we we cover um next week. But episode 61, Mike, final thoughts, what you got for this week? All right. So uh, we, we always tie things together. Um, I do understand the sensitivity behind the whole Bruce Lee thing with the book and the movie, of course. Um, but I do acknowledge, I do understand that, that um, we've never had Asian American or Asian leading man in like a non martial arts thing. You know, we never had that. And I, I I'm I get it I'm I understand that it's sensitive, but um, I think the point of him losing is to hype up a character, and it's not like in a disrespect. It wasn't in a disrespectful way, even though uh, on further inspection, actually, Tarantino does a lot more digs about the show Kato. He says it's a rip off of Batman. I think it has nothing to do with that. It's just he Tarantino just doesn't uh, his his gripe with. Uh, uh, Bruce Lee's widow for some reason. I don't know. That's just, that's the one thing I get. It has nothing to do with Bruce Lee. It's like he has beef with her for some reason because I think they had like a real life situation. Um, but that goes with the baseball talk we we're talking about with uh, Otani not being the face of MLB, not not marketable. Mm-hmm. But automatically, I can't just shut that down and say, "Oh no, you can't say that." I can, you know, I can say like, "All right, marketability, all right." I can play devil's ad. I can do I can, contrarian. You know, I can I can see both sides saying, um, in most sports, like LeBron James. If LeBron James didn't talk, uh, if he talked to an interpreter, he wouldn't be making Space Jam two right now, right? It wouldn't be. I don't know. It's it's complicated. I know that Space Jam is going to be in China and everywhere, but that's that's why you have subtitles. Um, but I get where he, where Stephen A was. I get what he was saying. Um, but I think that's, that 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 idea of thinking like that is not in the whole global scheme of things. It's it's archaic and it's outdated. Uh, Shug, you said a great you said it perfectly with uh, the translator, where you can have a presence on sh- social media and you can just press translate and you can see you can get a conne- human connection to him by translating the words. Like you don't uh, necessarily have to completely. Uh, I don't. It doesn't have to be. Me up there, I can see Otani, and I go. I respect his game. Um, I can see if I had a son, he's wearing an Otani jersey. Uh, I, 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 I totally understand that. We had Yao Ming for all those years. Us growing up, uh, you know, you wouldn't expect Chinese basketball player to be like the number one guy in our, that whole decade. I know, uh, you know, the All Star games. He was a big deal in our uh, uh, in, during that decade. Uh, oh yeah, Wild Wild West. Uh, I'm I'm feeling very nostalgic for the late '90s. Um, this was a big deal. July '99, I was watching wrestling. Wild Wild West, talking about that, dancing to Will Smith, and here I am, 21 years later, watching wrestling, <laughs> talking about Wild Wild West, <laughs> dancing to Will Smith. Um, I, I love I love going back and thinking about uh, the the late '90s movies because. I have a deeper appreciation for it because uh, I went back and watched a lot of the '60s shows over again too, um, and I have an, I have a better understanding of when things come out now, 
where I see like Generation Z kids like really getting hyped up on things that I have no connection to, I totally get it. I get it. You know, I, I understand like them getting into uh, like they're doing like a, the Gossip Girl reboot and stuff like that. Like kids are like really into it because in that decade they were 15 years younger than me, so it's like a big deal. That's like for a show that came out when they rebooted something, and like, I got really, I got excited about it. Um, what I've learned in the past like year is that uh, the gener there's new generation, and I'm, I'm I'm totally understanding that it's like a new a new era. This is what I've I mean, been learning a lot when talking to, talking to you, Shrek. I've been realizing that uh, there's a new guard out there, and, and the next generation. Yeah, sure. yeah. Wild Wild West. Um, it's one of those movies. Like to to me, like if it pops on, like. IFC or like TNT real randomly just like to be on just um it's not like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or something where they make like a whole weekend of it but it's just on like oh like it's a western movie week or wild or bad movie weekend um it's one of those things where it's just like it's so it, it's so bad but it's like not as bad it's not bad enough like it's unwashable. Like it, that, I think that's what you know we're trying to accomplish with you know at least this like retrospective is that it's it's a it's a watchable movie. Like it's comforting. Yeah, it's like it's like if you're expecting like Citizen Kane, um, or Casablanca, or even like Unforgiven, you know another you know Western that came out in the '90s. Like it's not gonna be that. It's just like fun. Um, it's a fun movie set in, um, you know, has like a lot of anachronisms and, um, oh yeah, like the other thing, like I picked up on was a lot of like, um, little innuendos, like sexual innuendo jokes that I hadn't picked up mm. on when I was a kid. So, you know, if you were a kid during that time and you wanted to watch that movie and have shot away from it because, you know, everybody's telling you it's bad and of course as we've said that the people that made the movie um hate it you know maybe it's time to like give it a second look and just watch it to like enjoy it um Stephen A. Smith you know what he said like from the time he said it I just thought it was whack I don't I don't think it was like no way um to defend any of it either you know refusing to pronounce like Nigerian basketball players names it's like all right well the names can't be pronounced but you know what i could pronounce kevin durant's name and damian lillard lillard's name and they got the best of those dudes so they do at least deserve your respect that you try to make an attempt to pronounce their name um and shawayatani like you know he's not like particularly my cup of tea the part i kind of left out in that whole segment was one of the reasons they like took out the whole like um year to year saves and MLB the show if you watched that video where I said I wouldn't play you know the new version is because they made it so that you'd be able to pitch and hit and it's something that really didn't appeal to me because I had like a straight up pitcher and I had a straight up hitter um that I could flip-flop I didn't need to play them all as like one person um and the angels in general, like they don't really appeal to the masses because they're haven't been in the playoffs in seven years. 
So, um, you know, maybe he might change that this year. Um, they've been pushing Mike Trout for years, and, you know, Mike Trout has made some, like, great plays in the outfield and stuff like that. But when you read that a guy had, like, these mammoth, like, 400 foot, 400, almost 500 feet home runs, and then, you know, at the same time, is like, throwing gems, for his team, you know, it's something you put your eye on, you, you know, you, you you gravitate to. And it's something that brings in new fans because, you know, spoiler alert, like baseball isn't like the most interesting sport in the world. So they need as many eyes on it as possible. And if the people who used to watch it don't want to watch it anymore, then tough titty. Who gives a fuck? Um, you need to start appealing to kids. Like, you know, I really got into baseball, you know, when I was a kid because I started going to games, um, started really, like, looking into the history of the game. And especially, as I said, it's kind of, like, disingenuous to call him, like, the modern-day Babe Ruth. But the reason why I could say is disingenuous is because I've read up on it. I'm like, Babe Ruth didn't pitch and hit in the same season, which kind of makes Shoya Otani even more unique. And it shouldn't matter. He doesn't speak English. Like half of our favorite baseball players, we don't even know what they sound like. Anyways, they it's virtually the one sport where guys um do all their talking on the playing field. Um, not to you know jump on the shut up and play bandwagon, but you know it's, it's interesting through all you know. At one point in the day, you're saying shut up and play, and then on another point in the play, it's like I, on 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 another point in the day, you're saying, "Well, I can't listen to this guy speaking Japanese," and then his interpreter, like, in, you know, translating for him, you know, shut up and play. I, you know, he doesn't speak English. Like, what do you want? He's playing, and he's literally you know, only talking if you want to hear what he has to say. Um, once, upon a, once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, as we've said, it's a book you can't really, like, put down. It's interestingly written. Um, and we'll continue um, doing it. We kind of, like, you know, got, like... Uh, two more weeks. Yeah. Two more weeks of uh, fun. You know, kind of like Groundhog, two more weeks of summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and um, I think, like, when we're finished with the book, I think um, we'll rewatch the movie and then mm-hmm. kind of compare and contrast, compare and contrast that. So if you guys are interested in that, just um, keep listening. Um, as always, stuff always on our YouTube and something I just um, started uploading our stuff to. Vimeo, it's nice, uh, you know, some of our shorter videos will be uploading on there. So, you know, you're able to post them. And when you post them, actually, it has its own player. So, you know, check out our Vimeos. And we got more and more stuff coming out um, down the road. And in a couple of months, we actually got like a little, possibly a little surprise Mm-hmm. for the folks um but you know the more the more and more we set things in stone the more and more we'll elaborate on that um but this has been episode 61 of shug me the mooney shug me the mooney shug me the mooney <laughs>